Hey, this is Ineash with just a couple notes before we begin. First, Stephen is not in this episode. Due to overlapping travel plans, he ended up in Japan while we were recording this episode. However, he will be back next time. Secondly, after recording this, I realized that it's going to air one day after Stanislav Petrov Day. Stanislav Petrov was one of a few people in history who were under orders to launch nuclear missiles and defied those orders in order to not destroy the world. September 26th is the day we take to commemorate this achievement, and hopefully everyone had a chance yesterday to stop for a few moments and not destroy the world themselves. Okay, back to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I am Inyash Brodsky, and today I have with me Shelly. Hello. And Thomas. Howdy. And hey guys, guess what I just got back from? What? Burning the grocery Man. Store? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so actually it's been a few weeks, but I was recently at Burning Man and I thought it was really neat and I wanted to talk about it a bit because I thought maybe other people might be interested in hearing about it as well. And that is one of the reasons also that Thomas is here because you went to Burning Man a few years ago? Yeah. And how long ago was it that you went? Uh, it was either 2012 or 2013. I can't remember exactly. Okay. It was the, the one that was caravansary themed, if the, any listener can remember what year that was. Okay. It, that, is, that is a word I just learned yesterday, too. And it is so weird that like you brought it up today. It's, that is the only context I've ever heard that word. Like caravan I've heard before, but caravansary, that's the only time. Yeah. So what is that? Uh, that is... I think it's the adjective form of caravan. Okay. I think it's like a place where caravans go to like get their horses watered and fed and like, like oh. a, a truck stop for caravans almost okay. back in the day. That is not what I would describe Burning Man as being like. <laughs> no. you should, if you are seeking to acquire more water, that is not a good place to try to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a dry place, but if you are running low on water, people will give you water, which is nice. Uh, yes. So, um, yes, uh, the reason that you specifically are here is because you said you did not like Burning Man at all. Um, I wouldn't say I didn't like it at all. I'm saying I would say that it didn't live up to my expectations. And in particular, it did not live up to the expectations that like every, all of the burners and the Burning Man organization, uh, BlackRock, whatever, um, go out of their way to tell you that it will be. Oh, crap. I now have... I now have severe doubts about this podcast, even oh. though we just started it, because I went in with like no expectations at all. I had no idea what to expect, and so I was fucking blown away. So that seems like a really good way of doing it. Okay. I would say that I learned two major lessons, and that's about going to Burning Man, and that's basically a rephrasing of one of them. Okay. So I guess our number one piece of advice is turn off this podcast and don't listen to any more of it and just go to Burning Man and re-listen to us a year from now. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. I would, I would say that this is advice. Uh, these are things that I've learned that I would give as advice if someone is going to go to Burning Man. Okay. But also, I... You wouldn't recommend it? I, I am, am down to offer alternative suggestions if you want the same sort of things that you can get out of Burning Man. Okay. Well, I have always kind of wanted to go, but I'll, at the same time, I don't like the outdoors and I, I don't like things. <laughs> <laughs> so, rather broad. So, also stuff. Yeah. Don't, don't like stuff either. Both pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. So I am curious to hear like the pros and the cons 
of of what it's like and whether I should consider going or not. Okay. Uh, out of curiosity, what is one of the things that attracts you to Burning Man? Mm, I guess the art specifically mm. um, and just like new and original ex- things to see. Maybe not so much participate in. I'm not that much of a participator, even though Burning Man is really all about that, right? It, it is. I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to. Yeah. But you get a lot more out of it if you do just jump in and participate. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I would also say that uh, the art is a great reason to want to go. The art really is spectacular oh, and, yeah. and incredible. And both uh, in terms of quality and quantity that there's an enormous amount of it. Lots of the pieces are physically enormous. Yes. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. uh, and almost all of it is really quite good. Yeah. I, would, I mean, the one thing I heard about Burning Man was that there's a lot of drugs there. And, and so, that's why you wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's just what I had heard. And so I was like, well, there's probably going to be a lot of drugged out hippies there. And that was my only real expectation. But I have a number of people who I respect that have gone yeah. and have afterwards said, guys, this is really amazing. You should go. And so with that like loaded in my brain, I was, I was thinking, okay, eventually one of these days I'll go right, get around to going. And then a ticket kind, kind of fell in my lap. And so I was like, well, this is perfect. I am currently unemployed and got nothing else going on. I should go now. And so I went. And yeah, the, the thing that really surprised me was the art is amazing. And there's so much of it. And I did not, I don't think I saw even half of it, really. Oh, yeah. And I spent at least half my time just biking around from one thing to another, trying to look at all of it. And then part of the problem is that it, it changes, right? The art looks different during the day than it does at night because, you know, the, it, a lot of it is self-lit with neon or fire or something. And during the day, that without that there, it makes a difference. And just the environment gives a dif- different air during the day. Yeah. Um, you brought up a lot of things that I would like to comment on. Okay. So I'll go through them a bit and try to remember them. Uh, yeah, I would say that Burning Man is one of the best art museums I've ever been to and by at least an order of magnitude, the most expensive art museum I've yeah. ever been to. And I'm not sure I would say that it's an order of magnitude better than the mm. other art museums. I So I've only been to a few art museums. I think the the biggest one is the one we have here in Denver. But if other art museums are anything like them, they're nice air-conditioned buildings that display art pieces, right? Uh, that depends enormously on which art museum you go to. Okay. I find that the Netherlands has several of my favorite art museums, and one of them, the name of which is escaping me right now, uh, is in the middle of a national park that you have to bicycle to in order oh. to get to the museum. Half the exhibits are outside. They have a bunch of uh, Van Goghs in there, which are amazing in person, so much more impressive than any photo you've seen of them. Oh. And um, that whole park is a uh, deliberately, well, like much like most of the Netherlands, deliberately constructed, used to be underwater, and it is designed to show off all of the landscapes that occur in the Netherlands in one, like, several square mile park. Oh, neat. So, like, that's the sort of thing that I'm comparing Burning Man to in my mind. Now, 
But you have to fly out to the Netherlands to go to that. So is it really an order of magnitude less expensive than Burning Man? If you're not, if that's the only reason you're going to go to the Netherlands, no. Then it's probably about the same cost, or maybe half as much as going to Burning Man. Okay. And I guess there would be some other attractions for me besides the art if I decide to go. Like I like the whole counterculture vibe, mm-hmm. and I, I enjoy some dirty hippies. <laughs> the, yeah. The culture. Well, actually, before I go on, you you had some more things you wanted to address. I. I do, yeah. Um, so you were talking about a lot of people doing drugs at Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burning Man is in Nevada, where all the fun drugs are illegal, mm-hmm. which means that by far, by far the most common drug there is alcohol. And alcohol is fun, and I like it, and I indulge in it every now and then. I am drinking a screwdriver right now during recording of this podcast. <laughs> but also, Burning Man is in the desert, yeah. and it is very hot and very dry, and alcohol is not a good choice of drug for that environment. Mm-hmm. But because there are a lot of cops at Burning Man, if you openly do other drugs, you will get arrested. Mm-hmm. Or at least there's a decent chance you will. And so... One of the principles of Burning Man is uh, gifting. It's supposed to be a large portion of what goes on is people giving free things to other people. Mm -hmm. And I was led to expect that that would be similar to the gifting marijuana culture that I was familiar with from going to college in Oregon, where there's a whole lot of people standing in a circle, passing a pipe around and inviting but not pressuring anyone who happens by to join. But instead, I found that all of the illegal drugs were done in secret and not open to outsiders. And instead, there was a lot of people drinking openly and offering alcohol openly. And I found that much less pleasant and chill. And there was, I encountered easily 50 times as many drunk twenty early 20-something uh frat boy rave type people as I did aging stoner hippies. Okay. I, and I say that as a man who was in a fraternity. Okay. I so I was going uh straight this year, so I did not take any drugs and therefore it didn't I mean part of that reason is because as we said earlier uh when we did our drugs episode uh, I didn't want my first use of an illicit substance to be someplace where I was not, com- you know, comfortable and familiar with the people, yeah. and I had never done any of those drugs before. So I was like, I'm not going to do them for the first time at Burning Man. No. But um, I also kind of get the feeling that a lot of Burning Man is what you make of it, and since I wasn't there for the drugs at all, that didn't bother me. Um, if someone was going for the drugs, they'd probably want to bring their own or go with a group of people that they trust. I agree. And I did bring my own, but a part of what I was <clears throat> frustrated and disappointed by was that I deliberately brought enough that I could share with strangers, uh. but then it was quite difficult to, because whenever I was thinking like, okay, I'll, I found a shady spot, I'm going to set up camp here for a few hours and give away free drugs to people, and I would start unloading my backpack and get ready to bring out a bong, and then a cop would walk by, I would hide everything, <sighs> wait a few minutes, think, okay, maybe now I can, and then a cop would walk by, and I'd go, alright, <laughs> screw this, and I would get back on my bike and go somewhere else. Okay. So I wanted to be able to share that experience with other people, and as someone who's already has done quite a lot of drugs and is very comfortable with them... I wasn't looking to have a first-time experience or looking to mooch off of other people. I was looking to give things away, and then I couldn't. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
I, uh, when, I, I, when I went, the, I, I worked at a tea house, which was kind of a come and relax here if something's, you know, if you're stressed or something's going wrong. So I saw a number of pretty wasted people, uh, which was interesting. So there were plenty of drugs. And I went w- with my camp. I don't know. It's, it's very much sort of a bonding experience. And you're told in all the primers on Burning Man, do not offer drugs to anyone you don't already implicitly trust, right? Because there's lots of undercover cops there. And, uh, but at the, at the last day when they were burning the man, several people in my camp who I'd only known for seven days were like, Hey, I got some of this MDNA. You want to try it? And I was like, Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's nice that you trust me that much, but no. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, that was nice. So, I mean, I guess maybe go with like a group. It's weird because you are supposed to make a lot of connections with strangers, right? That was the other half of what I did there. And it was such a huge part of the culture. It was nice. But if I was into drugs, I would have been sad. You're right, that I couldn't also (laughs) share drugs with strangers. Yeah, and you sort of tangentially brought up what I would say is the most important lesson that I've learned that I would do differently uh, should I go to Burning Man again, which there's a good chance I will, Uh, which is that I would take much more care in selecting what camp I go with. Mm. I basically went with the first camp that invited me, Mm -hmm. and it was a bad choice. It was a bad fit. Um, that camp was almost all, uh, Australian early twenties, something drunken rave types. And we were Australians and we (laughs) ruin everything. (laughs) (laughs) And we were camped next to, um, several of the largest, uh, sound camps, which is what they call, uh, places that put on concerts the entire time, like literally 100% Uh of the time. Uh And so, Boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats just constantly the uh-huh. entire time I was there. Um, I actually spent more nights at Vivian's camp than at my camp because there was a sound camp nearby. And it, it was a bit of a problem. Yeah. And so I think if I had been with a camp that was more chill and like you talked about working at a tea shop or not shop, but giving tea away, uh-huh. that sounds lovely. And I think I would have enjoyed that a lot more. So if I had been paired with a camp that was more my speed, I bet I would have enjoyed it a great deal more. Okay. Why, why did they even have the other camps around the sound camps? I don't know exactly how the placement was done. Yeah. I don't know anything about that really. The The guys in our camp said that usually they are not near sound camps because they are a tea house, a place to yeah. chill and not have, you know, overstimulation. And something happened where this year a sound camp was put across the street from them. Mm. You have a small amount of control of it if you are the organizer of your camp, but largely it's up to the whims of the organizers of Burning Man, and they only have a finite amount of space, and all of the sound camps are enormous. So Mm. somebody has to be next to them. Yeah. How how big is it anyway? Uh, So that was a thing that surprised me. Uh, The the official estimate is around 70,000 for this year, I believe. Uh, but that's just a number and you don't really get a feel for it, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I, I came in, I think, around 1 a.m. on Sunday and parked the car and set up t- a tent and just crashed out. And the next day I got on my bike. I rode out to the man. I kind of was around a little bit, but I didn't go that far. And so I was like, okay, this is a decently large place, whatever. The day after that, I rode out to the man. And then from the man, I went to center camp, which is the whole thing is kind of arrayed in a large sundial around the man in the middle mm. and the man is i think a half mile from uh the, any any actual camp i think it's a mile across so yeah a half mile from where anyone can set up camp is where the man is but i went to the man and then cut over to center camp and when i turned away from the man and looked like just the entire place was set out before me and it was 
It was massive. I was shocked at how big this is. Just It's very large. As far as I could see, yeah. I was like, this is a huge amount of people. How long to bike across it, do you think? I, I don't know. If you were to start at one end and go all the way to the other in a straight line... Maybe and you don't fif- encounter difficult terrain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe fifteen <laughs> yeah. or twenty minutes. Mm. It's not too bad, but you're not just driving in a straight line from one end to the other. Yeah. You're going all over to all the cool places. Yeah. Um, I should probably add a note on vocabulary because I might use the word playa a few times. But uh, they use they call the the grounds that the the Burning Man is on the playa. So that's that's a thing. And if you go out of way where people are not camped, like around the man and even further out, they call that deep playa. And that's where a lot of the best art installations are. And for anyone interested in the specific vocabulary term, a playa is an empty lake bed. Well, this playa is, the, is an empty lake bed. Didn't, doesn't playa mean beach in Spanish? Yes. And in English, it means empty lake bed. Does it? Yes. Fuck, I didn't know. Yeah. Okay, neat. I've learned another thing. <laughs> So when I first heard about Burning Man like 15 years ago, uh, I, I had been told that the cops go easy on the drugs at Burning Man, but I guess that's no longer the case. Uh, I heard that it was the case originally, and then they had a change in sheriff about a decade ago. Oh. Yeah, and he was much less copacetic with the drug use. And also, as the event has grown, there's yeah. necessarily been more people who cause trouble, yeah. and it, while it might be difficult to bust someone for being a jerk, it's easy to bust someone for possession of an illegal drug. And so people will use that as an excuse to bust mm-hmm. people. Well, I am curious to know if there's any uh, rationalist angle to Burning Man or your experience. Uh, I have two things about it that I would think might be of interest to rationalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is what I was going to say earlier is it has a... To me, what was a very interesting culture that I'm really glad I experienced, but it is, it is a culture of like basically trying out everything and uh, being very open and just involving yourself whenever you want, and everyone around you is really supportive. Mm. And the thing is, this place is out in a... It is, it is a desert that is like... Most deserts are have scrub and cactuses and some life in them, right? Uh, but this is like the desert you think of when you see Lawrence of Arabia desert. Yeah. It is just a dried out lake bed with fine dust everywhere and nothing is alive. So it is hot and uncomfortable and dry. And you quickly get the uh, understanding of why there is such a hospitality culture among, uh, yeah. among the cultures that are in the desert. Because, yeah, you, you could die quite easily. Yeah. And uh, people are always around to help you and give you water or shade or something if they see you're in trouble or uh, give you some food if you're dying of hunger. And that, so there's a, a sense of safety. And since there are some people that are like fucked up and everyone wants to have a good time, there's this feeling that if something bad happens to me right here, I am not alone. Like out here in the suburbs of Denver, if something bad happens to me, I guess I can call 911 and pay my life savings to be taken to a hospital and then I miss work and everything's awful. But out there, it's like people are going to rush to my aid. Everything's going to be okay. I saw people... Well, I saw one guy specifically leaping from one giant granite block to the other at this oh awesome art installation. Yeah. And I was like, they were just far enough away that when you're standing oh. on top of them, you're like... I could make that jump, <laughs> but I'm not sure I want to try because 
Shit. I mean, you'll still have to be driven to the hospital yes. even out there. Yes, but just just the feeling of everyone being there to help you is nice. And I saw someone in the middle of a dust storm. There was a lady who was like having a bad skin reaction. Her hands mm-hmm. were really chapped. And someone with like these cool raver light-up gloves just handed her gloves over and said, here, yeah, you need these. And the old lady was like, well, not old, I guess, <laughs> middle-aged lady was like, I can't take these from you. And she's like, no, you need them more than me. Take them. And people just give everyone each other stuff and are really supportive. And it's it's a great culture. And so that, in in my mind, it fosters what I call it's the luckiest place on earth because huh. everyone is just willing to help everyone else and you talk to everyone, you open up pretty quickly. And so there's all these opportunities to make connections and find out neat things and just experience life in a whole new way. It, it, I've, I've, there were more cool coincidences in that one week there than I have had in you know, any year basically of my life elsewhere because everyone's just open for cooperating all the time. It's like a high trust society. I would definitely agree that there's a lot of helping people out. And in particular, I remember an incident where Allison uh, started overheating and um, several other people noticed this and um, like one of them went off to soak a rag in cold water and then bring it back and another one went off to get a water bottle um, because I'd already given her all of my water. And yeah, I agree. There's definitely uh, a significant and effective culture of helping out other people when they get in trouble, which I really like and really appreciate. I do want to sort of quibble about a minor thing that you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about uh, T.E. Lawrence and the deserts of Arabia that he right. was in. I will dispute that it is actually similar to that because um, the deserts of Arabia are sand dunes mm-hmm. and the playa is flat and has no sand. Yes. It is rather, it is an alkali flat, which means that it is completely level uh, with no, like there are mountains on the outside of it, but within the playa itself, there is no change in elevation at all. And also everything is alkali, which is the opposite of acidic and has the same effect as acid basically, which means that everything gets slowly corroded, which is why that middle-aged lady had trouble with her hands uh, chapping is because there is alkali powder everywhere and it will corrode everything, including your body. So you're just getting corrosive dust all over you the whole time. And in your lungs. (laughs) And, And don't bring any electricity with you that you value oh, right I, i've heard that the number one thing about bringing stuff to burning man is don't bring anything that you would be very upset if it was destroyed yeah except I, yourself i brought my <laughs> de- <laughs> depends I, how you feel about yourself i guess <laughs> one great benefit to being alive is that we can heal from things better yeah. than plastic can yeah i brought my dslr and spent a long time putting uh electrical tape over any oh. space that mm. could possibly get dust in it and that was pretty effective uh but if i depended on that dslr for my living i would have gone to much greater lengths to protect it because it did end up getting yeah. slightly damaged what wow. is a dlsr a dslr is a um digital single lens refractor camera okay. if you picture a large fancy still photo camera as opposed to a video camera you are probably picturing a dslr unless it actually takes film in which case you're picturing an slr but okay. they look the same okay I will say that the alkaline is not like, it's not like the blood from the aliens. Uh, <laughs> you don't feel like you're melting at all. It's just that after a few days, you'll notice your skin is starting to crack if you haven't been, you know, doing vinegar washes or something. Yeah. It, is that what you did? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It, it, some vinegar washing uh, every night will help with that immensely. The most important thing to put it on is your feet. 
Yeah. Oh. Especially if you walk around barefoot or in sandals at all. Yeah. Um, I, earlier you mentioned not being a huge fan of the outdoors. Yeah. And I would say the, the, the aspect that we've been discussing now is definitely the most arduous part yeah. of it, and there is no escape from it. Let me say that I am also not a fan of the outdoors. I am very much an inside kind of person, and I, I don't have a tan. The sun burns me. Huh. Uh, I, actually, I have a little bit of a tan now because of Burning Man, but uh, in general, I do not do outdoors either. I don't go on hikes, even though we're right next to the mountains here in Denver, and I know I should, whatever. Uh, but it's not that bad. It's certainly uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to the point that when someone hands you a cold water bottle, you feel thankful. (laughs) You're like, I get to hold something that is cold, and this is so nice, and oh my god, there's water inside it. Uh, So it is is definitely uncomfortable, but it is not horrible. I I agree. Yeah. I I was never like in pain or anything. Hmm. I was just like, eh, this is, you know... At one point, I uh, tripped and cut my leg, and then getting alkali dust inside of a cut oh. is fairly painful. Oh. Oh, yeah. But I, but that was not one of the things that made me upset. I, I think I'm also not hugely into outdoors, unlike almost everyone else in my family. Mm. Um, and so I had a, a similar perspective. I also don't really go hiking very much, despite living near the mountains. But I think that Burning Man is just difficult and uncomfortable enough to make you really appreciate the moments of ease and comfort that you get and not so difficult that it actually makes you miserable or puts you in serious danger. It is like just the perfect level of uncomfortable to make you not take things for granted and appreciate stuff. I agree. Like someone said, you know, you could go to an art museum and have a hotel vacation, you know, on a beach or something, but then you take the hotel for granted. It's air conditioned. It's just always there. Whereas out here, that you take, you really notice the small things and you appreciate them. You know, t- taking things for granted is something that I appreciate in itself. So. <laughs> <laughs> taking a break for it for one week out of your lifetime might be nice, yeah. though. Um, so, are you familiar with the ten principles yes. of Burning Man? Okay, so would you want to go over them like really quick? Sure. Uh, so, radical inclusion, which is the idea that anyone can participate in anything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Gifting, the idea of giving things to other people, which uh, ties directly into the next principle, which is decommodification. You are not allowed to sell anything at Burning Man, and you are mm. strongly discouraged from, for instance, Trading. Meeting up with okay. the other, uh, with the many VCs who attend and trying to pitch your startup to uh, them. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but that doesn't mean that doesn't happen yeah. because it definitely does. Can I interrupt you real quickly? Sure. Uh, the uh, thing I was talking about earlier with the culture, I just remind that the commodification thing reminded me, and which is another thing that I think all people should experience at least once in their life, is um, I have very much the sort of achievement based uh, view of life. And I, yeah. I, I, I don't know, I don't know where exactly that comes from. And I think maybe it's even good for human society in general. But uh, I know the last psychiatrist often said things along the lines of, "You want to be noticed and special and have everyone love you, but you're just like seven billion other people on Earth. Go out and do something special. Give them a reason to actually care about you, right?" Okay. And that's very much like how I view life in general. I'm like, yes, I would like to go out and be valuable to society. I'd like to do accounting or put out a podcast or do something, you know, that actually makes people uh, want to be around me. And the really like bizarre thing about Burning Man is that everyone simply liked me and accepted me because I was a person. 
Like that was it. I was there and they're like, you're a human. Welcome home, which is actually something they say, which weirded me out at first, but uh, I, I got used to it pretty quickly. Like I was accepted simply because I was a person. I didn't have to do anything or prove anything. And no one really has anything on the de desert. Everyone is living in faux poverty and you're giving away anything that, that you have anyway because none of it has much value and it's not going to last very long. And the, the whole thing is like there's only people left. And there was this one point where someone was dancing with me and afterwards said thank you just because I was dancing with her. And I was like, that is, that is insane. You don't know who I am. I've never done anything for you. What's going on here? So it was really a unique and weird experience to be liked simply because I exist. And it's probably the first time I've ever felt that. Because even even for my parents, I would get stuff like, you know, go out, do something with your life. Why should anyone care? And having... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I, I, I thought that was normal. <laughs> but, I mean, they, they still love me, of course. But, <laughs> but they just don't like you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I still got to be useful. Um, yeah. And it was... It was that really blew my mind, and I just, once I really grasped that, it made the entire week amazing and magical for me. And I was, like you said, the, the, the radical participation, I was involved in the opening ceremonies, just because one of the, 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 the main lead dancer carrying the big silk thing around was like, follow me, and the thing was dragging on the ground, so I picked it up and went with her, and I was part of the ceremonies all of a sudden. It was neat. That's wonderful, yeah. yeah. So that... that Definitely ties in with the next few principles, which are, um, skipping over one of them, uh, radical self-expression, which is the idea that you should go out there and do something that shows everybody else who you are. Uh, and communal effort, which ties in very much with what you were just saying about participating in the opening ceremony because there was an opportunity for you to. Mm -hmm. Civic responsibility, which is basically just don't be a dick. Mm -hmm. uh, leaving no trace, which is... Don't be a dick to the place you're in, in addition to not being a dick to the other people. Mm -hmm. And participation, which ties back in with what you were saying earlier mm -hmm. about um, how you might want to be more of an observer than a participant. Yeah. That's discouraged. Yeah, um, that's, what, that's my impression. And I think that's probably a good thing because there were a fair number, especially in the group, that, in, in the camp that I was in, there were a fair number of people who had no desire to participate but just wanted to watch. And several of the people in my camp had no desire to do anything other than see the famous DJs who had come to DJ at the sound camps mm. and were basically treating this as a music festival that they had to camp mm. out for. Mm. And that's discouraged, and I think it's a good thing that that's discouraged. And also I think that even though it's discouraged, there's still quite a lot of people who are doing it. And at least when I went, the Delta was in the direction of more people coming and not participating. Mm. And personally, I didn't create any art for the purpose of displaying it there. I participated in the art, I danced, I dressed up, but I didn't come with an art car or build an exhibit or anything, and I kind of wish I had. I don't think you have to necessarily. I didn't either. Well, I, there, I, there's I, almost nothing you have to do here. Yeah. It's just what's encouraged. Yeah. I actually didn't even come with a costume because I didn't realize that, but... Uh, I just... I just dress the way I normally do, but people think it's a costume. Right. No, but I went to the costume cult camp, and they gave me a free costume. And that really made my week. Costume cult is one of my favorite camps. They yes. do, they're do they doing the Lord's work. Also, shout out to BJ Kramer and Mars. You guys are awesome. They're from costume camp. Nice. And they have done voices on the Methods of Rationality podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, Hannah Abbott and uh, Barry Onehand. I feel like I could participate in, like, utilitarian things that, I don't know, just... 
odd jobs that need doing. Uh-huh. But I, you know, I I serve tea at the tea house, yeah. and I think just being present and talking to people oh, is also somewhat participatory. I don't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a big part of it. Well, a lot of the time, since everything is given out for free, uh, there's generally lines uh, mm. because, d- correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the impressions I got very early on is that you aren't just taking things that people are giving away for the most part. You are paying for them in quotes uh, through appreciation and socialization with the person that gave them to you. They're like, yeah, let's chat for a little bit. Like when I went to get my free soup, uh, there was a line of six people in front of me, and I was waiting for about a half hour <laughs> because every person got to the front. They would chat with the guy. They're like, hey, uh. thanks. This is how my day went. What's up with you? And, you know, afterwards, they're like, all right, here, here's your soup. And then the next person went on. And, like, you could not live in the real world like this. I could not wait a half hour to get my coffee at Starbucks, even if it was free, because I got to talk for five minutes with the server. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was fun this time. And so... You get to talk with a lot of people. Like I said, that's part of the luckiness aspect. And since you're in line all the time, not all the time, but you're in line somewhat, you start conversations with the people near you. And you pass out some snacks you brought or some water or give them a beer or something. And you make a lot of connections in line, too. So that seems cool. But the idea of, like, I socialize with you in exchange for soup it's not, like, it's not literally I mean, an exchange for soup, al- but kind al- of almost a that, right? Yeah, kind of, almost kind of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't have to, have to, but people but, are going to start you, looking at yeah, you weird. They are. You, yeah, they you, are. Yeah, it's the the social norm is that you'll be open to participating in conversations or what have you with strangers. Um, and you were talking about doing odd jobs. Yeah. I would say there's not actually a lot yeah. of that because like for anything that has things. to. Sorry, what? Carrying or. Yeah, clean, cleaning. Uh, you, you can out volunteer water. actually with yeah. the organization if you wanted to. Got, yeah. yeah, there's I, a census bureau yeah. and a number of other. But really, for anything that has to get done, yeah. they need people who are already committed and reliable, mm. and so they aren't really mm. going to have space for people who just show up. Exactly. Yeah. So, like for instance, I volunteered at my camp. Um, like, I mean, I say volunteered, but it was a requirement of being in the camp uh i helped build a geodesic dome and then inside of that dome i had a few shifts where i made cocktails and handed them out to people for free which is fun i enjoy doing that i often do that at parties because i'm fairly good at it and i enjoy it kind of wish i was handing out something other than alcohol Mm -hmm. like the tea would have been probably preferable to me because I'd prefer to hydrate people than dehydrate them in the middle of the (laughs) desert. Um, But that was not really something that someone could have just come up and volunteered to do. Yeah. And uh, also brief aside, not like a lesson or anything, but just a funny thing that happened because it's alcohol. I had to check IDs. Yeah. Most people don't carry an ID with them at Burning Man. No. So and some I w- of them are naked and have no place to put their ID. Oh, right? well, what you do, you have to bring your own cup to Burning Man. Oh. Off. Usually, most everyone brought their own cup. So you get one of those shatter-resistant... You don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. You should. You should. You get one of those shatter-resistant uh, heavy plastic ones, and then you photocopy your ID and just tape it with uh, yeah, clear yeah. tape to the front. And I accepted that when people had that. Mm. Um, and if they had gray hair, I accepted that. <laughs> right. uh, but... I was really surprised by the number of women who offered to flash me in exchange for free alcohol. And like, you I, know how many tits I see out here? Yeah, and, and then I said no, and then they flashed me anyways and demanded the free alcohol, and I continued to say no. But yeah, I would have given it to them if I hadn't been confident that there were cops around yeah. again. Yeah. Were I designing this, I would have left it in California. 
Though, of course, at the time that they moved from California to Nevada, there wasn't actually much difference in the laws. Yeah. And now it's so strongly associated with the playa that you really couldn't move it anywhere else. Yeah, it'd be really hard at this point. Does anyone know when it started? Yes. Um, I don't have it memorized, but someone certainly knows oh when it started. God. I mean, either <laughs> I, I, of you too. Okay. Uh, it was the late 90s, and it started on a beach in San Francisco. Uh, All right. Don't know the exact date. The so late, late 90s. Yeah. That's good. And, you know, just a few hundred people in tents. They would, you know, make like an eight-foot, nine-foot man out of wood it and was set him on fire. first held in 1986. 86? Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was even earlier. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's been going on for a while. All right. Um, longer than I've been going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. So you, for all you know, you were conceived at Burning Man. Oh. I was not. So okay. That would have been a several-year pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so we, when we were talking about the ten principles of Burning Man earlier, oh, did, did and you say you skipped one? We did, yes. Which I want to go back to now, oh. which is radical self-reliance, which right. is the idea that you are not dependent on anyone else. There. And he's like more leaning in that direction, if not completely, right? I'm, I'm sorry, say again. Leaning in that direction, not like completely, right? Re- not yeah. Com- yeah. It's something that's encouraged, but in reality, not enforced in any way. That was the one that I, afterwards, I was like, I'm surprised this is a principle because yeah. everyone relied on everyone else a lot. The. Intention. Have you heard the phrase sparkle pony? Do they still yes. say that? Yes. Well, yeah. you didn't say it, but they, they were talking about it there, yeah. Yeah. So um, for any listener who's not familiar with this, a sparkle pony is someone who shows up to Burning Man with no intention of taking care of themselves, but instead just wants other people to give them all the things that they need, like shelter, food, water, drugs, all of that stuff. And the idea, the reason I think... I'm not certain about this from a historical perspective, but I'm strongly suspect that the reason that radical self-reliance is one of the principles mm. is to discourage that sort of behavior. Okay. Because you can't have everyone behave that way. No. If everyone expects everyone else to take care of them, nobody's going to get taken care of and all of a sudden there's 70,000 corpses in the desert. Yeah. In really? fact, you don't actually have to take care of yourself. People will take care of you, especially if you are, as the stereotypical Sparkle Pony is, a scantily clad young <laughs> woman. But that being said, it seemed like most people brought enough stuff to be more or less self-reliant and everyone kind of like shared and formed a net. Because I agree. Because no one has exactly all the stuff to be completely self-reliant, but when everyone does it more or less, then it works together as a group. Yeah, I think it... I think that having it as a norm but not as something that is strictly enforced is a good middle ground. And I think that they do a good job of doing that. But you could also arrange that someone who comes with you could be more responsible for you. And that kind of counts as like bringing what you need. You brought your person. Sort of. (laughs) And and a lot of people do do that. But personally, I disagree Mm. with that as a I, I think that's a bad way of doing it. And I think... I I know that a lot of other people agree with me on that Mm -hmm. because it sort of breaks the decommodification principle. And uh, the sort of camp that I think you're describing where someone just 
pays extra money and doesn't have to work and doesn't have to take care mm. of what they're bringing, but instead someone else that they're basically hiring to do it for them yeah. does it for them. Those are called turnkey camps, and those are popular and becoming more popular. Uh, actually, I'm not sure how it is nowadays, but certainly when I went, uh, a thing that a lot of people were concerned about was that those were becoming more popular and it was becoming in vogue for, uh, you know, VCs and wealthy startup guys. That, that, yeah, that does sound like commodification. Yeah. Right. Although I was thinking more of like your friend. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel more like it's uh, camps are radically self-reliant because you don't need everyone to bring a gas stove. But, you know, have someone bring a gas stove, have someone bring the butane, have someone bring some food. I, I, I made the mistake of thinking, hey, I don't want to be like filling up tons of space and with coolers and ice and all this various food. I'm just going to get the most calorie dense foods I can. Which is what? So I got a large jar of peanut butter and mm. uh, several pounds of dried apricots and a lot of oatmeal. And by the second day, I was really sick of peanut butter and apricots and oatmeal. I, <laughs> I can see that. I, I was like, personally I was so brought several pounds. Me. I was like, look, just in such a small place, all the calories I need for a week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, I can't stomach more of this shit. Right. But it was nice because, you know, I gave some of that to other people. And they're like, hey, here's some eggs. Here's some fruit. Here's some things that you won't feel like just you're choking it down. I wonder if anyone brought Soylent. Yes, yes I did see definitely. Soylent around. Oh. Yeah, you were talking about... Um, rationalist aspects of it. I don't know to what degree you meant that as the community that calls themselves rationalists and to mm. what degree you meant that as like the set of skills and ideals that they aspire towards. But certainly when I went, there was at least one, probably more than one explicitly rationalist camp. Oh, was cool. there? Yes. Neat. And I hung out with them a bit, but I was not a camper with them because while I was invited to be one, I had already been invited to be a member of a different camp, and yeah. so I was. I went with the first one that invited me. I will totally look up this camp and say hi to them next year. Yeah. I was the camp I was with. I was invited to it by a rationalist, so there were at least two of us there, which was neat. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it was certainly not a rationalist camp. Yeah, I was invited to the camp that I was in by a guy who I would say embodies a lot of the rationalist virtues, even though he doesn't consider himself a member of that community, mm -hmm. and. It was of the people that I got along with very well at the camp. It was him and Allison and myself. Okay. And that was about it. And that was about it. <laughs> this okay. is a total tangent, though, but even though he doesn't consider himself a rationalist, is he, like, aware of r rationalist topics and, and in the existence of oh, it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So then he um, I mean, if, if nothing else, he's talked with me and Allison a lot. Um, and, yeah, I, uh, he's definitely aware of them. He's, like... I'm pretty sure he's read at least part of the sequences on Less Wrong. He just doesn't participate in that specific self-identified community. I mean, you've heard the argument that, that anyone who has opinions about anything rationalist adjacent is rationalist, even if, they, <laughs> if their opinion is they hate it. Ha, I have heard that argument. <laughs> I, yeah. I have not. <laughs> I'm trying to, I hope I bookmarked that because yeah. I want to link it in the notes, but I don't know if I did. Um, yeah, but it is, it is, so in, in addition to, I mean, I, I think rationalists would like it partly because it is just a unique experience. And I know like Jenkins was talking earlier in one of our earlier podcasts about how he likes just doing and trying out unique 
experiences, and this is definitely one of them. You don't run into this sort of thing in the outside world very much. Uh, and I would, I would recommend everyone try it at least once just to give it a try, because it is neat. Uh, but the other thing, because you were wondering uh, what other things rationalists might get out of it. Yeah. Uh, this, this, I can't say I came up with this on my own, although maybe I would have thought something similar to it by the end of the week. I went to see Cory Doctorow while I was there, and uh, he said that Burning Man is like a uh, dry run of a post-scarcity society. Huh. <laughs> and, and I think he kind of has a point. And it's, I mean, it's obviously not remotely sustainable, but as I was there, I was like, this is kind of fun. We all just hang out and get to know each other as humans and like try to impress each other and entertain each other with art and what yeah, other things we got. I was like in the transhumanist utopia, you don't need to be productive or achieve things except for in, on an interpersonal level. Yeah. Right. It, and it was, it was very, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And I got to thinking, cause before uh, I probably even talked with you about this. In fact, yes, when I was saying like humanity has to have some control over our destiny yeah. and I wouldn't want the AI to avert the asteroids because then the AI makes all the important decisions in the galaxy, right? Humans don't even matter anymore. And after I went to this, I was like, I could totally just have non-sapient robots doing all the labor and providing us with all the materials and food and stuff that we need and just enjoying this. Uh -huh. Enjoying <laughs> other people and trying to like put up flashy new art things or whatever and man it wasn't bad at all i'm sure it's not how an actual post-scarcity society <laughs> would go but as a as a taste as like yeah. a dry run it was really neat and kind of eye-opening and i have this is one of the reasons i wanted you to be on here because i now have much less the feeling that we must be in control and we must be the ones doing things because, man, that was an enjoyable week. And I'm sure there will still be people who want to be doing things and doing science and pushing frontiers of knowledge. But that really was not a bad way to live. And I, I have much more sympathy for your cause of I like other humans and just hanging out with them. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even like humans that much. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but still, like, fr friendship is magic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that's a good basis for a meaningful life. Oh. So. <laughs> so I would highly recommend anyone who wants to get a taste. Like, I, I felt more optimistic for humanity afterwards, too. I was mm -hmm. like, this is what we could potentially aspire to once we have solved all the other problems. And the, human the, the, the future of humanity looks not too bad, taking this as, as a sneak peek. If I can briefly plug a uh, nice role-playing game that I think does a good job of also evoking that mm. post-scarcity feeling. Uh, I want to plug Free Market, which is a role-playing game set in the transhumanist post-scarcity future, cool. where your goal is to be uh, as entertaining to the other people in the post-scarcity future as you can, because that gives you access to even more resources. Uh, but there's no way to like die or run out of resources it's really fun and i recommend it to any listener who wants to get that get a sensation of what that possible future might be like mm, cool so i want to ask you thomas my impression is that you're a traveler and you've gone to a lot of places and tried a lot of new experiences yes so this is true Yes, my, my life motto is I'll try anything twice which is why i said earlier that i will probably go back to burning man at some point okay huh and Ineash, are you, I kind of didn't see you as like a 
uh, trying lots of different things. No, person. no, I've not been outside of Denver very often because I dislike the outside world. <laughs> Denver is my home space. And every now and then, like, I think about how it might be nice to live somewhere else. And then I'm like, but I would have to leave Denver. So I won't do that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do you feel like you maybe have moved more in the direction of of being more like Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> I would gladly do this one week out of every year. <laughs> I plan to go back at least once more and hopefully more than that. But I'm certainly not to the point where I can like just because like Thomas, I know none of our listeners know this, but like literally just travels the world. I, I do. And does things. And it's like, well, I'm going to live in Thailand for a year and I want to see what France is like for a year. And I'm like, how can you live like that? I need to know where my paycheck is coming from and where I will sleep. And oh my God, it's, it well, seems incredibly stressful. Well, I've never, well, okay. That's not true. I've, I have gotten paychecks before, but I, <laughs> I own my own business. And the fact that I can do everything I need to do in order to make a living over the internet is a big help in that. And I've, I've deliberately structured my life so that I can do this. And it's a lot of effort and requires a lot of sacrifice. And if I had decided to do what a bunch of my friends did and stay in the San Francisco Bay Area and get a job as a programmer, I would probably have a lot more money, but a lot fewer memories. Mm -hmm. And so I've deliberately made that trade off. It's not for everyone, but for folks who do want that, it's easier and cheaper than you think. And so I, if I may, I would like to use this as a, an opportunity to segue into uh, alternatives to Burning Man. Sure. Other yeah. things that you could do that would provide similar experiences uh, that perhaps are cheaper or perhaps just similar in amount of time and money that they take. Yeah. Um, and I would say the most, uh, the general principle from which we derive all the options is go to the third world. Mm. Huh. The third world has a lot fewer of the uh, niceties and infrastructure than you are used to. Um, it's more difficult. It's dirty and it's more exciting. You get to see things and do things and that you wouldn't normally, and you have to rely on yourself. Isn't the third world also a rather low-trust kind of society, though? I mean, I guess that's a well, broad way to speak about half the planet, but... Uh, that depends on who you are and what your background is. For example, I'm a white American... Which means that if I go to the third world and a government official mistreats me, I can complain to the American embassy. And that government is not going to like having worsened relations with the American embassy. Which means that most government officials will, at most, want a bribe from me. And honestly, the fact that government officials take bribes in the third world is so convenient. <laughs> like, really, just being able to hand someone $20 and they leave you alone oh. is amazing. That's one of my least favorite things about American police is that they are like they'll vehemently and stridently enforce unjust laws and they'll do uh, civil asset forfeiture to take your things. But they yeah. won't just take a fucking hundo in order to leave you alone. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go to Egypt and you give someone a hundred dollars, they'll be a personal servant for a week, even if they're a cop. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, but, do you not feel any sort of a cringy poverty tourism kind of vibe about doing that? Well, the specific yeah. scenario I was just describing was bribing an official oh. to leave you alone, no, which, no, I don't feel any no, poverty tourism like aspect of that. Going to the third world instead of Burning Man 
kind of no, thing? No, because yeah. um, so if I was paying someone to get rid of resources that they had or paying them to act in a degrading manner or something mm. like that, then I might. But honestly, what I'm doing, it, what anyone is doing if they go to the third world and spend money is that they are giving money to poor third worlders. And I, it's kind of difficult to make me feel bad about that. I think that um, money goes a lot further in the third world. That's how yeah. I've done uh, so much of the traveling that I've done for as little money as I earn is that earn money in the first world, spend it in the third world. You're giving money to people who are poor and are going to be able to um, make that money go a lot further. Like So you as, as an American, as someone who's identifiably foreign just by looking at you when you show up in Burma or Cambodia or Morocco, you're clearly not a local. You will get things much, much cheaper than you will in America, but also much more expensively than any local would. And if you're a jerk about that and you try to haggle things down to the price that a local would, I mean, well, first of all, don't feel guilty about haggling. That's part of the culture in a lot of parts of the world mm -hmm. that Americans are not used to. Um, but if you're spending more money than a local would, you're injecting a large amount of uh, cash into the economy. You're extracting what is to them a relatively small amount of value by like staying in their hostel or hotel or Riyadh or whatever it is you're staying in um, or buying a meal, buying some sort of souvenir, buying clothing, whatever it is that you're buying, you're probably paying more than a local would. You're paying less than you would to buy it in your home country. You're giving a lot of money to the people who are there, who are then going to spend it on other things in their local economy. And really, as long as you're not paying anyone to do anything unethical, you're just putting a lot of money into the economy. Aren't you okay? So one of the things I really worry about the third world is uh, being, you know, basically the crime, being victimized. Like you are a foreigner, you don't really have any support structure there. I would be scared. You do have a support structure. You have quite a few. So, so I'll take the example of Thailand, which is a wonderful place for people who are concerned about uh, traveling and who maybe who are inexperienced, Thailand is a great place to start because Thailand is, according to the technical definition, a third world country, which is to say that they were not allied with America or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. The Ameri Allied with America means your first world. Allied with the Soviet Union means your second world. So unimportant that you were not allied with either means <laughs> you are in the third world. Thailand is, first of all, quite safe. Second of all, if someone within the government mistreats you, then you complain to the embassy and they will cause a shit fit on your behalf. And they have all of the resources of America and nobody else can match that. And so they don't and, and, and related to that. And more importantly, they don't want to mistreat you because they want you to come there and spend money and they want you to have a good time. They want you to come back and do what I'm doing, which is encouraging my friends to do the same thing because it's great and they benefit from it. You benefit from it and everyone wins. And also in Thailand specifically, and also in some other countries, but not all, there is 
a thing called Tourist Police, which is a entire branch of the police force specifically designed to protect tourists mm. because they really want you to go there and spend your fancy American dollars. And so basically, as an American, less so if you're a person of color, but if you're white, and even if you're not white, but you're identifi identifiably not Thai or whatever the other dominant ethnicity of wherever you are, people will treat you better than the locals. Mm. The locals will treat you better than they will treat other locals because they want to be nice to you because there's a chance they'll spend money on them because they want to be nice to you because they know that you could rain hellfire down upon them if they behaved badly towards you. Now I'm getting a lot of privilege guilt. Well, don't feel guilty about it. If you want to feel, if you want to assuage your guilt, buy things. Okay. I mean, <laughs> money is the unit of caring. If you want to show, <laughs> if you want to show that you care about the locals, give them money. Don't just, don't just hand them money. That's yeah. not good. G give them a fair, what you consider a fair amount of money in exchange for the goods or services that they provide to you, which is totally fair. And, and everyone encourages it. <laughs> But I think that uh, this does sound like it would be a valuable experience, but you would also be missing out on that, that uh, this, the dynamic of Burning Man where almost everyone there, unless they're one of the powerful organizers, is kind of uh, the same, like they come there with the same amount of power. That was the, it was a very unique part of it, the equalization. That That's certainly true. And I'm not saying this will, that any of these alternatives, which we kind of got sidetracked, didn't talk about, but uh, I'm not saying that any of these alternatives will perfectly replicate the experience. I'm saying that for some of the things that you might want to get out of Burning Man, there are other ways to do it, which are perhaps more effective and perhaps cheaper. I do want to say that, I mean, Burning Man certainly isn't cheap, but... It's not third world cheap, but it's not that expensive. I think my ticket plus camp plus all my supplies together came to $1,000 or less. Right, which for the same price, I could fly to Cambodia, go to Angkor Wat every day. Uh, and what is Angkor Wat? Goodness. Is it the um, capital of Cambodia? It is. No. Phnom <laughs> okay. Penh is the capital of Cambodia. Angkor Wat... Uh, translates as ancient temple. It is the largest religious building in the world. Oh. Um, it's this phenomenal temple that is within this ancient city called Angkor Tom, which translates as ancient city. And uh, it's, can I would I ask, say it's one of the modern wonders of the world. Except can I it's ask also how much old. of an experience that is? Because I was down in the, uh, the ruins, the Aztec ruins, like one of the really large ones, and it was, I mean, it was impressive. And when I went, uh, you were still allowed to climb up the pyramids. You're not allowed to anymore, but I actually got to climb up the pyramid and be at the top and like serve, be ruler of all I survey, you know, <laughs> it was kind of neat. But I mean, as an experience, it, it did not compare at all to, to even a few hours at Burning Man. Or maybe I am, I don't want to overplay Burning Man, but the, the culture of it really made a big difference to me. And, and all the art installations everywhere around and the harsh environment, like everything together made it special in a way that seeing the, the Aztec ruins wasn't. So I've never actually been to South America or even Central America outside of Panama. So I haven't, uh, while I'm interested in Mesoamerican cultures like Aztecs and Mayans, I haven't experienced that firsthand. But speaking uh, specifically about the ancient Khmer culture in Cambodia, 
Um, yes, I would say that it does compare and that the, uh, the rules about what you're allowed to do in Cambodia are much laxer than the impression I've gotten from Mexico, which is where I'm guessing that you saw yeah. Aztec things. Um, and so specifically Angkor Wat, I said that one because it's the most famous one. It's the one people are most likely to know the name of, but the other temples, uh, in the other not even temples, but like just city uh, and and other things in Cambodia or in Myanmar slash Burma, whichever you feel like calling it, um, are less supervised than that. You are able to just go wherever you want. You can climb on the buildings. You can go inside of them. None of it is off huh. limits. Um, and you can explore everything. And uh, so a large aspect of Burning Man is the fact that it's in this playa. It's in the desert. You can see as far as light can travel. Um, and that is a similar but distinct experience from being in Cambodia, which is a rainforest. It's a jungle. You can't see more than a few feet in front of you until all of a sudden there's this enormous stone temple rising out of the jungle that's like 100 feet tall, and you can climb up to the top of it, and there's... In, specifically in Angkor Wat, there will be hundreds of other people there. But if you go a few hundred meters away to a different temple that you have to find in the jungle, there's no one there. And to me, that is a thing I enjoy a great deal. Um, at Burning Man, there's always lots of other people around, uh, which has its own benefits and lets you participate and commune with and and talk to and dance with and all that other yeah. other sort of thing. Yeah, the what, other people were like half of my experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I would say that aspect of it is not something you could get with by doing this, but the uh, wandering through a difficult environment until you find amazing art that you can definitely do. Uh, by going to Cambodia. Yeah. Oh, do you have uh, other alternatives? Uh, yeah. So the three places that I would recommend the most to try to get the, um, uh, to recreate some of the experiences of Burning Man are uh, Angkor Thom in Cambodia, Bagan in Myanmar slash Burma, which is a, uh, what used to be a capital of the Burmese kingdom and it was a tradition for more than a thousand years that the king would build at least one temple there hmm. and it was sort of a matter of pride that you would build more or better temples than the previous king and now Bagan is this tiny village that barely anyone lives in and the number of temples far outnumbers the number of humans there and so that is an incredible experience there you can uh, it's a desert except it also has trees. I don't huh. know a lot about ecology, but I'm surprised that it manages to combine the amount of sand with the number of trees. But um, mm. but you rent a bicycle, uh, whereas in Burning Man, you bring your own bicycle, and then you bike around from amazing art thing to amazing art thing, and maybe mm. you meet up with other fellow travelers and hang out with them, or maybe you don't encounter anyone all day long. Uh, but in either case, you get to see fabulous, incredible art in both places. Um, and the other place that I've been that I would recommend if you want to get the uh, incredible art and people in... feels 
a little strange to use the word exotic, but exotic clothing and mannerisms um, is North Africa. Uh, I would say that if you want to go experience what it's like to be in an incredible desert, go to like go to an oasis in North Africa, go to Marrakesh in in Morocco if you want to see um, people with stands. Uh, excitedly trying to get you to participate in a conversation with them. <laughs> um, definitely doesn't have the decommodification right. spirit of Burning Man. Because the but... conversation they want is always, do you want to buy this thing, right? Well, eventually. First <laughs> okay. they want to give you free tea and yeah. then they want to talk about your family and their family and then they want to talk <laughs> about the stuff that they have and then maybe they want to sell you something. Okay. Maybe means yes, but they'll phrase it as maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you were talking about how all of this stuff at Burning Man combined cost only a thousand dollars for a week. Yeah. And including plane tickets, that's several times what I would pay to go to Cambodia Mm. for a month. Mm. So I still, I I mean, if I had a thousand dollars, I still think I would pick Burning Man in large part because I now know a number of the people that are going there and I, I get that and it was it was really neat chatting with absolutely everyone about everything. I got to meet someone who is pitching NASA, trying to convince them which one of the three sites uh, uh, that they're down to on Mars the next rover is going to land at. And and he was like, I really want them to go to this one because it's kind of like the Yellowstone of Mars. And like he got into the whole thing. And I was like, Oh my god! And you're actually working with NASA? And he's like, Yeah, this is and oh wow, right? You know that was that was amazing and just. It was a random hippie dude that was in our camp. I yeah. thought that he was like cheat or something, you know? But I, mean, I, I, I definitely agree and, and think that's a very strong point in favor of Burning Man is that the people that you meet there are not the same people that you would meet in any of the locations I described. Um, the stuff I was talking about is more in terms of if you want to have the being in a slightly physically arduous situation and looking at amazing art. Okay. Um, I would say another big aspect of Burning Man is that it is more dense in mm. terms of the number of experiences that you will be able to have per unit distance or per unit time. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I have structured my life such that if I want to live in Cambodia for three months and spend every day at ancient temples, I can do that. And like my first game, Professor Pugnacious was play tested in one of those temples just because that was where I wanted to hang out all day. Cool. And so if you have, yeah, if you only have or, a week, right. If you have one or two weeks of vacation time a year and you want to get as much experience as you can during that time, then yeah, maybe trying to spend a month in Cambodia isn't going to work as well for you. Yeah. Have you been to many music festivals or art festivals? Um, I've been to a few. I wouldn't say many. I'm not one. Like I know people who go to as many of those yeah. as they can and I'm not one of those folks, but I've been to a few. Do you find the same kind of value from those at all, or uh, same as Burning Man, or same yeah, as something like similar to um, yeah, Burning Man? So I would say a large portion of what I found unique about Burning Man compared to those sort of things is the twenty four seven aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That you go to sleep with stuff going on, and you yeah. wake up with stuff going on, and 
you will never see in one trip all of what there is to see in Burning Man. Even if you just stay up as late as you can and do nothing <laughs> but try to experience things. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, and I would say that like when I've been to other festivals, there were things that I would go to in the morning, leave in the evening, mm. and then maybe I'll go back to them the next day. But in the meantime, I go home, I go to sleep in my bed, I wake up the next morning, and then I go back to the festival. I haven't been to another camping festival like that. But I would be really curious if there are any listeners who have been to something like Pensick. Uh, I would be really curious to see how they would compare them. Maybe this is an example of another thing that you tried because you like trying things. <laughs> and, and do you think that, like, well, let me just ask you, like, where, where does this come from? Do, do you just have, like, an instinctive urge to do new things? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Is it related uh, to your values, maybe? Or how do you th- view this? Uh, yeah, so I do have a very strong desire to have new experiences. Um, and I consciously decided that my life motto would be, I'll try anything twice. Because the first time you might just mess up or have a bad example of it. But if you try it twice and you don't like it either time, then it's fine to decide you don't want to do it anymore. Um, So, yeah, I'm naturally very open to new experiences. That's one of the big five personality traits, and I score pretty high on it. Uh, And also, I've made a conscious decision to cultivate that in myself and deliberately expose myself to a variety of experiences. For example, uh, around age 13, when I was entering puberty, I became pretty confident that I was gay. But I made the conscious decision that at some point in my life, I would experiment sexually with a woman. And then later, when I was in my early 20s, I did. And to my surprise, (laughs) turns out I like ladies too. (laughs) And now I'm married to one. Didn't see that coming. Was it really that surprise? Just like the empirical evidence was what it took to let you know? Yes. And and in fact, there was a very strange and surprising change in my internal experience that I had previously not noticed that like one woman was more attractive than another one or like just the thought of of them as a sexual being didn't naturally occur to me until after I had experimented with one. That is so weird. Like I would previously look at a woman and not have any sexual thoughts the same way that I look at a giraffe and I don't have any sexual (laughs) thoughts or I look at a car and I don't have any sexual thoughts. But then after I'd, I'd had sex with one, seems kind of dehumanizing to refer to them as one. But after I'd had sex with a woman, I, um, which wasn't even PIV, it was mm-hmm. just oral and stuff. It was. <laughs> Sorry, what? No, no, go, go ahead. <laughs> um, after that, my automatic instinctive response to looking at a woman changed. And now I instinctively evaluate them as a potential sex partner the same way that I do whenever I look at a man. What, what age were you? Uh, 22. Do you think the or same thing 20, might happen? Do you think the same thing might happen if you did have sex with a giraffe? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I can't tell. Okay. Because I have heard uh, of people when they were taking testosterone specifically, mm-hmm. they found themselves much more susceptible to sexual imprinting after trying, like masturbating to a thing once, once or twice on t- testosterone. They, they suddenly had a fetish for that thing, which, whereas well, that wouldn't have happened I've, to them I've never before. taken... 
Well, I, I've also heard that, and yeah. I agree that's definitely a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not taking and have never right. taken any sort of testosterone supplementation, and the I would assume that, uh, based on my rather limited knowledge of human biology, that the most like increase of testosterone yeah. in my system was happening P- when P- I was puberty, going through puberty. Right. You're t- you're and this old. was like a decade after yeah. that. Yeah. Hmm. But th- th- this is like surprising, but also you are the kind of person who would ma- do that experiment. So I don't know. Well, uh, another little bit of information. Um, I had already previously had sex with a woman, like penetrative PIV sex professionally in a porn scene Mm. and that is not a good environment Mm. to experiment in that is nothing like real sex it Mm. is not it's very much the director telling you exactly what to do and hilariously enough the the premise of that scene the (laughs) storyline was that there was me and another man and a woman and we in the story both wanted to have sex with the woman but she would only have sex with us if we had sex with each other first (laughs) but in reality me and the other man were both you know gay at the time and so we were you know totally rock hard for having sex with each other but then when it came to having sex with her (laughs) it was more difficult Uh um so that uh I, ca- I counted that, that. That is an excellent example of why I'll try anything twice because that was the first time I tried it. <laughs> okay. And I was just like, you know what? I don't think this is a very representative sample. I'm going to try again well. in an environment where there's nobody telling us what to do. It's just the two of us and we can, you know, figure things out. How the hell did you stumble into porn without like trying to get a job in porn? I did try to get a job in porn. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Because he wanted to try new things. Right? All right. It, it sounded like you just somehow found yourself on a porn set. Oh, no. No, no okay. I, I, right. I applied and, and got the job. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, would you like to hear the specific story of how that happened? I'm interested. Are you interested? Sure. Hit us. All right. So what would have been sophomore year of college, uh, my mom did not fill out her taxes on time. She filed for an extension. You can't file for an extension on the FAFSA, and you have to do your taxes before you can do the FAFSA. So all of my scholarships evaporated. So I had to take a year off. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to get a job while I'm taking a year off of college. So... This was in 2008, which was the height of the Great Recession, mm. and it was hard to get a job. So um, I applied to everything I could find, didn't get anything. I was talking with my dad, and I was saying, I can't get a job. I can't find anything that's anyone that's willing to hire me. And he says, hey, have you, have you looked on tra- Craigslist yet? And I went, no, I haven't. And at the time, they no longer do, but at the time, Craigslist had an adult jobs section. Huh. So... I was going on Craigslist. I looked and I saw adult jobs. I'm like, that sounds good for a laugh. I'll click on that. (laughs) So I clicked on it. And the very first job that popped up was we are looking for uh, white men ages 18 to 25 who are willing to have gay sex on camera for money. And I thought, that sounds like a perfect description of me. (laughs) So I applied and I got the job. Neat. Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah. Were Were you living in California? No. Denver. Denver? Yeah. I didn't know they shot porn in Denver. <laughs> well, technically, the shooting didn't happen in Denver. The shooting happened a bit north of here. Uh-huh. But, uh, but it was in Colorado. Yeah. I was under the impression like almost all porn was either uh, Nevada or California. No. Or um, Berlin, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there's a lot of indie porn that happens all over the place. Um, it's local laws vary what you're allowed to shoot in different places. But within America, it's not... 
I don't know of a lot of places that are super restrictive. Fun trivia fact, in Australia, it is illegal to shoot what they consider hardcore pornography in any of the states, which means you have to shoot them in the capital territory, which is Australia's equivalent of Washington, D.C. It's technically mm. not a state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in Australia, uh, if you're a porn actor, you will get you will be able to do solo shoots where it's just you masturbating wherever you are. But if they want to do a shoot with penetrative sex, they have to fly you to the capital territory, which basically consists of the capital hotels to support the congressmen and people who go there <laughs> and a lot of porn studios. And that is so bizarre. Cause like in America, you cannot pay for sex unless you're filming it. And in Australia, you can only pay for sex if you're not filming it. Right. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty odd. None of these laws make sense to me. Yeah. I got to say though, this story, uh, updates my credence i guess a little bit not 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 that much in the direction that if i were to experiment with uh i'm not gonna say people who read to me as a woman that it would be surprising to me i mean slightly more in that direction although i mean i'm I'm just i'm generally not the kind of person who is surprised by liking something but Give it a shot someday (laughs) with a willing subject. (laughs) Yeah, I I, uh, definitely think that folks who think they might want to experiment ought to. I I think it's a valuable experience that if you do it with someone else who is also fully informed and aware and and into that, which is what I did, uh, then there's a not a large chance that it'll be really bad and there's at least you know a moderate chance that it'll be really great and probably the largest chance is that it'll just be kind of a comedy of errors but that's fine too <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm doing things i'm kind of the opposite of you like i'm very low on the openness to experience uh, and i remember you saying trade. that you were unwilling to take acid because you didn't want no, to increase your openness well, not, <laughs> no i mean I, I did take acid but um oh, you did but uh, and actually, it was mushrooms specifically that that ah. study was on. But uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I I was a little worried about. I, I did take mushrooms also, but <laughs> did it increase your openness or I, I were you safe? I don't think that it did, but I don't want it to, right? I don't. Right. <laughs> yeah, Stephen said that he as much as he said he did enjoy it, but he didn't feel like there was any major change in his no. life after either. Yeah, I don't want major change to my personality. Because it varies by the person. Yeah. I did not... I, do, I don't like mushrooms. Yeah. I, huh. The first time I did mushrooms, the guy that I did them with just sort of left as soon as they started kicking in. Oh, that's shitty. And then I got lost on my college campus because it's hard to find your way around when you're on mushrooms. And I ended up in a basement of a dorm that I was not a resident of watching... Like, all the lights were turned off and people were playing Pink Floyd's The Wall on mm. a giant screen television and it was terrifying. Oh, no. So that's my primer for mushrooms no. yeah. <laughs> i've tried them since then one additional time because oh, i'll try anything twice, twice. <laughs> and i basically just had flashbacks to the previous experience oh, the God. whole time so <laughs> should have follow, followed taryn's guide what's be, that be in a familiar place with people who love you yeah that would have been uh, better <laughs> <laughs> oh um before you left you were going to tell us some other things that you disliked about your experience at burning man yeah right so yeah the reason i brought up the uh the 10 principles of burning man is that i found that 
I think I went in expecting the event to conform to those principles more than it did. Ah. In particular with the radical inclusion one. And that um, you, earlier you were talking about how you basically just sort of wandered aimlessly, found something cool, did it for a while, and then went off to something else cool. Yeah, That's a much better way of doing it than what I did, okay. which is I, I spent a long time poring over the list of events and figuring out which ones I wanted to go to. Oh, wow. um, and... Of the things that I decided I wanted to go to, I only managed to successfully find one of them, which was a make-your-own-armored-bikini event. And, yeah, that was my reaction. I'm like, that's super cool. I bet I would look good in an armored bikini. Let's let's do this. So I went to it, and I was not allowed to participate because I don't have boobies. Oh. And it was this middle-aged man who wanted to look at a lot of 20-something topless women. I wasn't one of those, and so I wasn't allowed to participate. It's not even hard to find topless women. Yeah. You walk around in the playa and they're just there. Yeah. I mean, dude, that sucks. Yeah, it it did. And that was, I think that, and uh, part of the charm of Burning Man for me was that you just go and no matter where you go, there's something neat. And you're like, I will do this for a while. And every now and then it'll be an amazing thing. And other times you're like, well, that was neat. And you go back to camp and someone else is like, I was at this intersection where this amazing pianist came out and gave everyone headphones. And like, so it muffled everything else, but you could hear his awesome solo, but only the people with the headphones could hear it. And I was like, (laughs) that sounds fantastic. I wish I'd been there. But part of Burning Man is that you don't get to see everything, you know? Yeah. And you hear about cool stuff. Yeah. But I, I also heard a lot of events happen on playa time, in air quotes, which means <laughs> we're aiming to start at four. You'll be lucky if it's started by six <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I would say the, the two lessons that I would encourage anyone who's considering going to Burning Man to, to learn are, number one, pick your camp very carefully. Make sure that your philosophy and your camp's philosophy mesh well and that you like the people in your camp. Um, and second, don't try to go to any one specific event right. unless it's like a, an enormous one, like the burning of the man or the yes. burning of the temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are reliable and you can go to, and it will be what it is. Dude, even the opening ceremony started three hours late. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't even remember if I went to the opening ceremony when yeah. I was there. I, I but... went at first and I wandered off cause it was so long. And then by the time I wandered back, they were starting. Yeah. So that worked out well. Yeah, so I think that, uh, in general, something that is very powerful and uh, not necessarily neglected, but not focused on as much as maybe it could be, is the peak-end effect, which is the idea that for an experience, what you remember and what impacts you the most is not what the or like what your average emotional quality in it was, but rather what the most significant emotional mm. feeling you had and what the last one you had were. And so for me, the most significant one uh, was going to all the effort to find and go to that armored bikini thing and then being turned away. Mm. Yeah. And the last one was the organizer of my camp being extremely negative towards another member of the camp who had been more laissez-faire and just sort of go around and not want to stick around the camp and hand out alcohol all the time. Mm. And so while there were a lot of other really wonderful things that happened at Burning Man, those are the two that stuck with me the most and formed the majority of my opinion of it, which is what made me have the negative affect towards it that I do. Okay. Um, But 
there was a lot of other things that were really incredible, like the veil that Allison wore at our wedding. We found just blowing through the air on the playa, and it like just sort of connected with like the wind sort of blew it into her face and she kept it. And that was the veil she wore at our wedding. That's awesome. So, yeah. And there was a, um, you know, those fortune telling robots where you like feed them. Normally you give uh-huh. them a dollar and they, well, they had one they spit at, out a card. Yeah, exactly. They had one at, at burning man. That was a quest giver. Ooh. You didn't have to, to feed it a dollar cause decommodification, but you, press the button and it gives you a quest and the quest that it gave me was give allison a massage Aww. and it literally said the name allison oh so, awesome <laughs> i was like well what? more easily accomplished than perhaps expected yeah. luckiest place on earth <laughs> i swear to god yeah so it was a really um there really is an incredible amount of of wonderful things there and i don't want to make it seem all negative i just also think that a lot of people make it seem all positive and that's not what it's like because that's not what anything is like yeah and knowing what the negative negatives are that you should expect and that things like oh no i've it's Things are too expensive. Well, no, you know what all the expenses are up front. That's not the negative you have to worry about. The negatives are things like, can you sleep? Because it is very loud. Mm. Nobody told me about that ahead of time. So I did bring earplugs, but if I hadn't, that would have been obnoxious. Yeah. Even with earplugs, if you're next to a sound camp, it doesn't matter. <sighs> you can feel it through your air mattress. <laughs> That's true. Um, did you have any other questions for us regarding the Burning Man? Um, what about the burning of the man? How is that? Oh, that is really neat. It's, um, I mean, again, burning man is what you make of it. Uh, but it is a giant, like fire ritual with fireworks and all around it beforehand. There's a lot of fire dancers. There's literally over a hundred fire dancers, I think around the ring, just doing awesome fire tricks. And then they light it up and fireworks start going and this, you are at least 100 yards away from the man. There is a large perimeter for safety reasons. And yet when it is really going, it is still kind of painful. Yo. I like put my hands up to oh. shield the rest of my body. It's like, oh God, too hot. <laughs> it's, it's already burning hot. And then there's a fire, right? Well, well, it happens at night. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's, yeah, it happens at night. But it is just, I did not know that wood fire can get that hot. Yeah. I was like, I would have believed it of jet fuel maybe or the sun, but, but I, I like, I felt like I was going to get a sunburn. I was like, all oh, right, there's no UV coming out of this, but God, it's crazy hot. Yeah. I found at, at the, that far. I found the burning of the temple, which happens the day after the burning of the man, mm. uh, even more affecting personally, because I spent a moderate amount of time in the temple and, um, oh there was God. a lot of, uh, I think, probably don't tell people on air what's at the temple because i had no idea what to expect along all this art and partying and stuff and then i walked into the temple and it hit me like a ton i would say that it's a um i'll respect your wish but Mm -hmm. i will say one thing which Mm -hmm. is that um even as someone who didn't personally participate in the stuff that is in the temple except as sort of like an observers or going there to meditate um 
it was a powerful moment of catharsis. And I think that for people who do actively participate in it, it would be even more so. And my, so I my think my time at the temple was the most powerful of my week there. And and then the burning of it afterwards is quite something. Um, also, this year, I don't know if you observed this directly I or did, not. In fact, I was I was sitting right there when I, I he wasn't like right next to us, but I yeah. saw him running all the way, and I thought he was streaking at first. Yeah. You, okay. So for anyone who doesn't know the event we're referring to, uh, a man committed suicide by running into the burning man. Yeah. Um. So that gives you an idea of how emotionally powerful an event it can be. Um, though going back once more to, uh, the themes of disappointment and things being different than you expected, I expected quite a bit more fire at Burning Man than I actually encountered. <laughs> the, the amount of, of things illuminated by neon, mm. I mean, not only rarely by literally neon, but like by electric lights, yeah. uh, was easily a hundred times the amount of things that were illuminated by fire. That's true. But was it not fucking gorgeous? It was. Uh, I, there, so there's no public lighting in Burning Man, and it is a huge area, and a lot of people get by on bikes, and even the people, and there's some art cars that drive around too. So it is everyone's civic responsibility to keep themselves lit at night. Mm. Yes. And since it's Burning Man and it's an art place, a lot of people do it with cool like neon lights and stuff. And oh my God, it is so pretty. Yeah. It is. It makes Vegas look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. I, oh, I would. I, well, I already think Vegas is kind of shitty, but I, man, just the authenticity and the individual expression on display as well. Fair enough. This is another example of the sort of thing that you can get in uh, specifically Southeast Asia. Oh, yeah? They're, yeah, they're very much into incorporating uh, beautifully colored electric lights into religious ceremonies and religious... Uh-huh. Um, uh, like you'll you'll see ancient temples with a giant Buddha statue covered in gold leaf, and then also covered in fire in fairy lights because it makes it look awesome. Yeah. And if you are not, I think here in America we have sort of a tendency to consider lights like that to be tacky. Yeah. Um, but, but they're gorgeous. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think they look spectacular. And as someone who's a big fan of visual spectacle, I like that a lot. I liked the that aspect of Burning Man a lot. And also, I like Las Vegas a lot. Okay. So, I, I'm going to go ahead and address this because I'm pretty sure someone is going to bring it up. And I asked a number of people at Burning Man themselves this opinion. But uh, while I was going there, I kept being struck that this is like literally a city in the desert. It's not a ton of infrastructure. It's more of a tent city. But there is a lot of effort being put into like human labor and ingenuity and and just resources being burned putting this stuff up right certainly yeah and um and then some of the things that you put up are literally destroyed in in a fire ritual you know and then once it's all over everything is taken back down again and all that labor just disappears and it seems it seems so wasteful i'm like if you're going to put all this effort into something there should be something remaining afterwards infrastructure you know but I was like, what is the justification for all these resources being spent here on, I guess, what could be called hedonism and some of it being <laughs> definitely, yeah, and some of it being literally destroyed for the fun of destroying it. And when when this could be used for something more permanent and good. So, so this is one of the reasons why I sort of 
think like so the the reason I brought up the ten Burning Man principles before is that uh, there was at least one noticeable instance for me for each of these where the principle was blatantly violated, <laughs> and the idea that oh Burning Man is a decommodified thing that costs a thousand dollars for one week of participation, yeah. and that's on the low end. Um, it is like absolute bare minimum. If you don't expend any of your own resources and you just mooch off of other people, it's $400 for the ticket. Right. Mm. And then it's probably another $400 for your camp. If you're staying in a camp, which almost everyone does. And My if camp not, it's only 150. Okay. That's pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you, now you have to work 18 hours throughout the week to, to contribute, but. And bring, you know, food and everything. Right. So, but, but even so your total ended up being around a thousand. My total ended up being around a thousand. Um, and then, uh, I also object to people referring to it as a city because it is not sustainable. It is no, only possible because people are willing to expend far more resources per individual there than any other city. Mm-hmm. Like the one I would compare it to that is a real city is Las Vegas because they are both uh, absurd glowing spectacles in the middle of the desert that are man shaking his fist at the heavens and daring <laughs> Zeus to strike him down for his hubris. And Las Vegas makes it work 24 hours a day, 365 days yeah. a year for however many decades Las Vegas has existed now. And Burning Man makes it work for one week a year. Mm. And I find that there's this sort of idea among many burners that like, oh, look, this is an example of what we could make a, a, a post-capitalist, post-scarcity society look like. And I'm like, Right, in the sense that this sort of environment is only possible either in a situation that is post-scarcity or where people are willing to expend far more than their average weekly expenditure of resources. Mm -hmm. But you can't make that sort of society exist outside of that. You couldn't do that 52 weeks a year because unless you are independently wealthy and willing to expend a large amount of your resources on that. Or if robots do all the labor and gather all the resources well yeah i used yeah. i used Literally the present tense scarcity. i use the present tense deliberately you yes. can't do that now yeah maybe in the future we'll be able to but mm-hmm. right now you can't um and so i think that holding burning man up as this sort of garden of eden where no one needs any money man <laughs> is a lie yeah. and i think it's a harmful lie that deludes people into thinking that this sort of thing is a more ethical or more uh, efficient isn't quite the right word but i also think it's far less efficient cuz a lot of the electricity is run on gas generators and camps oh absolutely which is far less efficient than having a large central uh, mm. generator or you know, you certainly aren't going to have little nuclear generators in your camp. Right. So, and yeah, per the, the pollution per megawatt is, I'm sure, much higher in Burning Man than oh, most yeah. places in the world. Burning Man generates, I'm, I'm absolutely certain, an enormous amount of, of waste compared to any other city of the same amount, well, village of the same size. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I think you described it as as hedonistic uh, mm-hmm. a moment ago, and I agree with that. It is very much a festival of hedonism. But it can be hedonism in the good way, too, like the hedonism of seeing art and interacting with other humans as real people. Oh, I, I, I agree. I don't think hedonism is a bad thing. I just think that we should not delude ourselves into thinking that it is something other than what it really is. Mm-hmm. It is a fun vacation that people do for fun. Yes. It is not a... Uh, getting back to the true spiritual nature of the world and living more in harmony with the Gaia Earth Mother. (laughs) It is spending $1,000 to party for a week. And if you hurt yourself, you're not going to get an infected limb and die of that. You're going to be helicoptered to a hospital. Yeah, probably. No, definitely. Um, (laughs) I saw the ambulance take the man away. Yeah, I mean, unless you hide it from other people. Right, yeah. But yes, yeah, you're not actually forced to be self-reliant the way that you are if, for instance, you camp in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that if people who go to Burning Man, especially people who identify as burners and go to uh, other smaller burn events, need to be more honest and forthright and upfront about what Burning Man actually is and what uh, you can actually expect from it and how you should go into it, uh, then at least then they were when they were talking to me before I went. Um, But of course, that was several years ago, so I don't know how much it's changed. I haven't been living in the Bay Area, which is the cultural center of Burning Man activity when Burning Man isn't actively going on. I also had the advantage of not knowing anything or having any expectations. Like I met at least at least one person who very much bought into what you're saying. He was one of the guys that was telling me, man, the money's all a lie. Nobody really has to work for anything. Look at how Burning Man works. And I'm, I'm doing the stoner voice, but dude, he literally had the stoner voice. <laughs> yeah. It was it was crazy. But for the most part, the the, the people I interacted with all knew that this was not a sustainable thing, that this was a, and and this is why I'm going to go ahead and defend Burning Man, that it is a unique experience. And the fact that it is so temporal or temporary, it's, it's part of the ethos of Burning Man. It's sort of like the whole, whatever the, 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 is it a Buddhist thing or a Zen thing that all things pass away and don't hold on to anything? That's definitely a Buddhist thing. I don't know very much about Zen. Okay. But it, it was that sort of thing. Like, Everything is temporary. Enjoy it and let it go. And that is why we're burning this at the end. And that, that the entire culture of that really helped me to embrace that for a week. I'm not, I wouldn't build my life on that, obviously, but uh, <laughs> because I am who I am. But having it for one week was, I think, really worth the trip. And I would recommend it to everyone. And seeing all that art was amazing. And in the end, Having getting to get a little sneak peek at what a post scarcity future might be like is also worth it, and I'm willing to to pay a thousand dollars for a week for that. Yeah, and I think since you didn't have false conceptions, like uh, misleading preconceptions about what you would be experiencing, I think you went into that with a healthier attitude than I did. Okay. And uh, I actually have some questions for you sure. um, about how it's changed since I did it. Oh, let me also toss in one thing. And for anyone who does feel guilty, 
dude, remember Scott Alexander's 10% thing. As long as you're giving your 10%, you can spend the rest of your money on anything and you fulfilled your moral obligation. <laughs> okay, but sorry, go ahead. Um, so uh, I'd like to briefly describe the culture and what people perceived as how the culture was likely to change back when I did it, which was four or five years ago. And I'd like to hear how it has changed and what the cultural perception was uh, from you now. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then, there was very much a concern that the original ethos and the people who had been coming to Burning Man for 20 or 30 years, um, that the culture was changing out from under them and that it was turning from people come and build art that is largely made out of fire into and, and they participate in the 10 principles and uh, do a lot of communal art and everyone participates. Uh, and everyone generates art, even if that's just dancing, that's an art form. Um, and it w- the fear was that it was turning into people pay a bunch of money in order to have servants take care of all of their camp's needs. They show up and never expend any effort. They just watch the art. A lot of the art turns from fire into neon and a lot of, uh, and there are like big name DJs who put on sets and people... Mm-hmm. The same sort of person who would spend a thousand dollars to fly to Europe to go to a rave, instead, or in addition, spends a thousand dollars to go to Burning Man to go to a rave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how much do you think that it has turned into that, and how much do you think the direction has changed? Um, so, as a caveat, it's seventy thousand people there, and I saw only like a tiny slice of it. Uh, so, I, I don't know if I'm representative. However, what I saw was. Um, a, a larger mix of people, there were definitely the old guard. Our camp elder has gone 18 times, I think, and he skipped a few years. So it's been at least like 23 years ago was his first time, I think. And uh, he was very much of the original ethos still. And he promoted that to the rest of our camp. And I saw that being lived for the most part with the people that I did meet. Uh, however, since I was there mostly for the art, I didn't really go to the big raver stuff. I did one night go out to one of the huge sound camps, like massive towers in the sky. It was like a fucking Tower of Babylon that was blasting boots and pants and had fire dancers in front of it. It was it was kind of cool, actually. Um, but even the people that I met uh, that were doing that seemed pretty cool for the most part. Uh, so there was... There was a similar sort of fear, though. There were I heard a few times people saying, man, did you hear about that camp where you just pay uh, $20,000 and they do everything for you and you get an air-conditioned you know, jacuzzi inside your <laughs> RV and everything? Like, man, that is against the ethos. And then there were also some people that complained that uh, apparently this year for the first time you could rent bicycles with money because uh, you've always been able to buy coffee and ice, right? Yes. Uh, you can buy coffee at Center Camp. That's the only commodity you can buy. And then you can buy ice in a few locations, which I consider really just a necessity of life kind of thing. Uh, th- but those are the only things you can spend money for in Burning Man up until this month or this year, where now they also had one place where you could rent bicycles for $100. Um, yeah. And they were purchased com- a bicycle for less than that before I, did I went. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I had to carry it on my car. So I don't know. Maybe it's worth the extra money to not have to bring it in. Uh, but so there was, there was some complaining about that too. There was like people like that is against the decommodification and it's kind of neat to, to have the fact that people are against it, uh, Mm. still talking about like, I don't think this is right because that helps keep the culture a little purer. Right. 
I don't know. So it seemed to me like basically I would guess it sounds very similar to what you were doing where people are worried about it changing, but it doesn't seem like it has changed. Uh, except I do think that there is a larger mix of newer people. I, there were definitely, I, I, I met a fair bit of virgins myself, and it seems like the people that have been going for 20 years are coming less often nowadays. That was also true when I went. Okay. And so I, so I, maybe I, it's stable. I, it might be at the same ratio, stable, or it might have continued along that trajectory. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that one rule change they implemented the year after I attended was, which I'm not sure if it's still in effect or not, uh, is that sound camps were not allowed to advertise the DJs that would be playing at them. Ah, okay. Because the year I went, uh, ah, darn, the DJ's name escapes me, but it was, a, it was a DJ who I had heard of and listened to their music before. Like, they were a big name, mm-hmm. um, and they were playing there. And so that brought people who just wanted to listen to that Mm. DJ and didn't want to do anything Mm. else. Um, And so I think that making that rules change was a good idea. And I'm curious how much that affected things. I I don't know. There there wasn't any... I don't know because I didn't go very much out with the party people. So I really can't say. Uh, The one time I did go to the tower, I suspected there was probably some big name DJ up there. But I don't know. There there, there was the whole... um, a running gag thing that Skrillex is playing out by the trash fence <laughs> because apparently last year Skrillex played out by the trash fence unannounced. People also said that the year I went. Oh, so did they? Maybe I it's just a long time thing. Don't know if it actually thing. happened at okay. any point. <laughs> Damn it. I was sucked in by an urban myth again. Uh, the, the trash fence for anyone who doesn't know is there is a fence out in the deep playa far away from everything else that is meant as a windbreak to catch trash that has blown away from people's camps so that at the end of the event people can go there and gather up all the trash and Um, i do recommend going out there it's pretty impressive i mean there were there were obviously the people at night that just went for the partying uh and i met a few people who were like yeah we sleep all day and then we go out at night and party but that's what they want to make of burning man that's one of the experiences available so yeah if that's your thing go for it um, have you been to, or would you consider going to a regional burn? I have not been to one. I would consider going to it. Uh, I spoke with Vivian who had been to Apogea, which is the local Colorado one, ah. uh, just a few months before she went to Burning Man. And she said that it is distinctly different that there is a, an, I mean, it's smaller obviously, but she said that the culture just isn't the same. There's not as much of the sharing, uh, openness vibe that Burning ah. Man has. And I don't know if that is just a thing for Apogea or, what exactly the deal with there is, but I have not been to any myself. Hmm. Uh, I have also not been to any myself, but I know a fair number of people who have, mm-hmm. and I have mostly heard that uh, the ones that they have been to, and I thought Apogeo was one of them, but I'm not certain now, mm-hmm. uh, had a stronger vibe, more like the the earlier burns. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I forget the name of it, but the one that I appears to be the most highly regarded is the one in South Africa. Mm, I heard a number of people talking about that. Yeah. um, There you get a very similar physical environment. Like the Transvaal is similar to the Playa and that they're both big flat deserts. Um, Transvaal much, much bigger than the Playa. (laughs) Uh, And I've heard that the ethos there is amazing, but I've never been. It it is interesting that uh, the, it's possible that the environment kind of shapes the attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that my parents uh, 
where they are from. I don't want to say where it is because it would make me too easily identifiable. <laughs> um, but um, where my parents grew up, uh, they they were pretty poor, quite poor. And they did have a fair amount of this like sharing uh, ethos in their community. It, it was not like a total gift economy like, yeah. like Burning Man. But yeah, and also it was... It was highly connected with the Christian church as well. But, yeah, that, I mean, that that kind of thing does exist, or at least it did when they were children. <laughs> and uh, I think it is associated with certain kinds of uh, hardships that that would will give rise to those kinds of cultures. Yeah. It could be that the Colorado one is just not very much of a harsh environment. It's... Yeah, it's if it happens in not the winter, then it's not very harsh to be in the mountains. Yeah, um, that's an interesting talking about your uh, parents growing up poor, and uh, that's an interesting aspect of Burning Man is that there aren't really poor people there. You oh, no. you, you need yeah. a, at like a thousand dollars disposable income and the ability to take a specific week off. There are some. I met a few hippies. I'm one. Well, there was a person in my camp in her mid mid to late twenties that has lived in a van her entire life, and drove that van there. So huh. apparently, there's like um, certain tickets that are reserved for mm-hmm. people who have very low incomes. Um, but you're right. Overwhelmingly, it is a place of people with a lot of money to go and be faux poor for a while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we will live in poverty, but it won't be poverty, poverty, because yeah. we know we're going back to safety in a week. Have you heard the song Common People? Mm-mm. It's a very good song. I recommend listening to it later. Uh, in particular, I recommend William Shatner's cover of it, <laughs> which is legitimately <laughs> excellent. I've, I've heard it. I have heard the William Shatner cover of this song. Is it legitimately excellent? It is so Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does what Shatner does best, which is conveying powerful yes. emotion, like perhaps over the top, but for the subject matter. Yeah. Um, but there's a line that, that stuck with me uh, in... Uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something along the lines of you'll never be like common people, even as you stay in your, um, you know, shitty apartment while roaches climb the walls. If you called your dad, he could stop it all. Mm -hmm. And in Burning Man, no matter how harsh the environment may be, no matter how deprived of whatever modern comforts you are used to, it's going to be over in a week. Watching roaches climb the wall. If you called your dad, he could stop it all. Yeah. You'll never live like common people. You'll never do what common people do. You'll never fail like common people. You'll never walk your We are, Jesus, we're at two hours. <laughs> but is, uh, is there anything else that you wanted that you were asked? Uh, no. No, I think that was it. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? I would like to conclude by reiterating the two lessons that I learned from it, which are, one, pick your camp very carefully. Make sure that your philosophy uh, and what you would like to get out of Burning Man aligns very well with the camp that you're going with. If you want to go there to attend a rave, don't go with hippies who are going to hand out tea. If you want to go there to commune with other hippies, don't go with the group that just wants to go to raves. Uh, And second, 
don't have specific events that you want to attend in mind. Instead, just wander. I, I would go a bit further and say don't go with any real expectations. Just go there and see how things turn out and let things go as they go because it's not going to be bad. Um, yeah, but no, I, I, I had a great time and I, I wrote a number of things about it when I got back, which are up on my blog, which I guess I'll link to as well. Uh, do either of you want to quickly promote anything before we go? <laughs> no. No. Uh, Thomas, I'm pretty sure you have something. Uh, buy my board games. <laughs> yes. I have one of Thomas's board games right next to me on the shelf right there called Cultists of Cthulhu, and it is quite fun. So I recommend his games as well. Yeah, Sixpence Games. You can find us on Amazon.com or SixpenceGames.com or your friendly local gaming store. Before we go, our regular weekly segment where we thank a Patreon supporter. This week, we would like to thank Adam for being a supporter and helping make this possible and letting all you guys hear this awesome stuff. Uh, admittedly, we would still do the podcast even without support, but don't let that get out there. <laughs> um, Adam, thanks you, thank you. You are wonderful. And many cheers. Um, so we got a number of feedbacks on the rituals episode. Are we okay talking about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what people said. And also I listened to it a while ago and I don't remember what all is in that episode. Okay. Uh, hopefully this will help to uh, remind things a little bit. Uh, since Steven is not here, I am having my guests help with the listener feedback this time. Leibniz, in, Leibniz Integral Cax says, I have the same or very similar objections as you guys to rituals, but listening to people try to express them makes them sound really stupid, especially towards the beginning. It sounds like robots trying to integrate into human society. <laughs> I agree with the objections, but I know not to voice them to normal people Aww. now. So I guess mission accomplished? <laughs> we, we, we helped you not do things a wrong way so you will be slightly less wrong now right hey <laughs> well kind of, you kind of already know not to tell the normal people these things right it's true <laughs> that's why we leave it in our little secret podcast that only we have access to <laughs> no but I, you know it, it is kind of insular since no one else listens to it right yeah yeah um, Jenkins, who is actually the Jenkins that we had on for the ritual, uh, says in the subreddit, we really should have tabooed the word ritual like four minutes into the conversation and gone from there. To be fair, I didn't see defining ritual as a critical point of the conversation. I really should have tried harder once I realized that's what Stephen was looking for. But my main goal was to point out that there are things we already do that could be considered rituals. And even if you don't consider those, you could conceive of something that we would be fine with participating in that almost everyone would call a ritual, and that's okay. Um, and taking it back to what we were talking about just now, like a lot of Burning Man felt like ritual sort of things too. Uh, one of the things, the you mentioned that the burning of the temple is very significant to you. Uh, for me, it was almost a bit of a letdown because after the burning of the man, me and my camp went to the temple. Uh, we walked there and then we had our own little like ritual of talking about how the week was and gratitude and like building like a campfire. Not a real campfire, but we, we had our own little group ritual and that was my sort of like, this is the end of the of the week for me and uh, mm. this is the ending ritual and so the the temple burning on top of that the next day was like almost gilding the lily at that point because <laughs> i yeah exactly because that was i mean it was interesting and it meant a lot for a lot of people i could tell but my my um 
I almost want to say clan now, but my camp wasn't there with me for the burning of the temple. So it wasn't, I didn't have the group feel anymore. Mm. Whereas we all went to the burning of the man together and made an event of it and then had a closing ritual afterwards. Well, uh, I'm going to go back to what uh, Jenkins was trying to say. Mm -hmm. he, he was saying that there are already things that we do in everyday life that could be considered rituals. Mm -hmm. do you, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know. I... There, there's a comment that I'm going to read soon that I agree with a lot, but I do have like, um, it, it's weird now that I'm unemployed because I've been employed my entire life since I was 19 and I developed a lot of rituals around that. And uh, when I decided to finally start taking care of my body and paying attention to the physical aspects of being alive, uh, it, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when I came home, first thing I did when I came home was work out for an hour and then I would go on to eat dinner or do whatever I want to do. And that became like a ritual of its own for me. And uh, it was it was sort of the taking away of the option to do other things. Like I will come home and I will do this and that's all there is to it. And now that I'm unemployed, I still keep with that Monday, Wednesday, Fridays in the evenings. I'll work out for an hour. And I think the reason that works is because I had so many years of doing it as a ritual that it became ingrained. Whereas... If I had been unemployed from the beginning and just decided to work out for an hour on those days, it never would have stuck. It was the coming home, taking off the work clothes, and jumping straight into that that became sort of a, a thing that constrained what I do. And so I think there are some rituals like that. Do you, do you have any rituals you are thinking of that you do? Uh, I, I'm really feeling the, the, the need to define ritual at this point, which uh -huh. I don't think ever really happened. Okay. How right? would you like to define ritual? I, I don't fucking know. I My instinctive thought about what makes something a ritual is that it has a structure that you keep to that doesn't have uh, direct utilitarian value, but instead is sort of done in order to give it a consistent structure. And I think that's something that um, is traditionally has been a crucial aspect of rituals is that they're repeated. Um, and that, so for example, the fact that you do this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday makes it a ritual. Whereas if you just one week, you were like this week on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to work out for an hour, then it would not really be a ritual. And so something that I think, um, the, that makes it really interesting to do rituals for the first time. Um, and I think the fact that like we've each been to Burning Man once uh, m perhaps makes the ritual aspects of it less powerful. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about things that were definitely rituals that I've done. The one that sticks in my mind the most is my wedding. Um, and that was very powerful for me and was very customized for the two of us that we were in the park we were barefoot which is not a standard part of the traditional marriage ceremony we had vows that we wrote ourselves we were our our mutual friend um raymond is what you might know him by from the internet uh officiated and 
all of that was stuff that was very customized to us, and that caused it to be significant and powerful in that way, but also to a degree removed a source of power that, that, that the marriage ceremony, that ritual, has had for other people, which is doing it in exactly the same way that their parents did and their parents did and their parents did. And the fact that ours was so different, I think, is, um, as well as being a strength, is also a weakness. And I think that something that, especially for contrarians and meta-contrarians like many rationalists are, we sort of break with tradition as a point of pride, that we want to be different, we want to be unique, we want to not continue doing things the same way as they've been done before, just because they've been done that way before. And I think that in many ways, that's a good and wonderful and powerful thing and a source of strength, and I approve of it. But it's not only that. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that a large source of the power of ritual is that you know that your community has done this same thing hundreds of times before, going back far longer than you've existed, and that you're the, the weight of time really adds something to it. Yeah, you're you're bringing a meme into the future, and uh, that is something that I have not really experienced, uh, and I sort of can't experience because um, even when I'm you know like invited by someone to participate in their holiday, uh, which has happened a lot of times. Um, I'm always sort of coming at it from an anthropological perspective that I'm not someone who is raised in this culture. I'm someone who's observing this culture. And I suspect that that's a very common point of view uh, among people listening to this. And I would be really curious for later feedback if there are people who aren't coming from that point of view, someone who was raised Orthodox Jewish or strongly Catholic and still does that. And I'm curious to hear what that's like for them. I, I know I personally also always felt as an outsider within my own culture. And part of that was, you know, because I was an immigrant and I didn't know anyone here, my parents didn't have any roots here, you know, and we joined a fairly young religion and all that helped. But also just the fact that I was really nerdy and that wasn't a big thing yet at the time. <laughs> and I don't know if it is even nowadays in elementary schools, but I I felt the more the weight of tradition when I saw uh, one of my friends who has kids, which is pretty rare, uh, passing on the tradition of watching Star Wars and, <laughs> and passing on this whole Luke, I am your father. And like th that's like a shared mythos that the nerds have, right? And yeah. At this point, I guess it's infiltrated the wider culture as well, but that I actually felt some connection to. Like, these are my people. These are our mythological stories. Yeah, I'm kind of the same as you in that uh, I, if I can't, like, f fully buy into the tradition, then, th then I don't value that sense of, you know, of that history because it's not something I believe in or approve of. I will say I do think it was a mistake to deritualize marriage and put it in the hands of government because the I want to do an entire episode on marriage at one point, but I most people don't realize that you give up a portion of your legal personhood when you enter marriage, and I think for something that dramatic as giving up some of your personhood, there should be a large ritual that is like 
you're sacrificing a chunk of you. This is important. And going down to the courthouse and signing a paper doesn't have the emotional weight that a ritual should have when you're doing giving away something like that. Yeah. And on that particular subject, um, Allison and I did the ritual and didn't go down to the courthouse and sign the piece of paper. Oh, so you did it the better way, in yeah. my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you happy? Yes. Awesome. I would have done that uh, mm-hmm. if there were not like legal reasons for me to, to you know, to not do, yeah, <laughs> to, we, to, to actually do a, a marriage license. But to, a part do, of me really did want to do just the wedding and not the legal. Okay. Yeah. That would have been the real marriage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you have some sort of ritual, a wedding or something? Yeah, I had a uh, traditional Christian Protestant wedding. Okay. Yeah. I feel weird because I would not want to spend the thousands of dollars that one of those weddings always entails. And, but I think a large part of that is because I have such a objection to the Christian Protestant sort of uh, aesthetic. And I, I recognize that for a ritual like that, sacrificing a lot of personal value is an important part of it. So, well, also, you don't need to spend that much. Like, oh, Allison, no, you don't need to. I mean, Allison and I spent. About five hundred dollars on our wedding. Yeah, all, all everything included. Yeah, you know, including her dress, for example. So, I mean, I, I had a, I went to a friend's marriage. I was in his backyard, and I think he spent less than two hundred dollars. Just yeah, some food for people and some drinks. Yeah, yeah, we got those. We actually used drinks we already had. My aunts and her grandma made food, uh, and there was not a whole lot of money that we needed to spend. Yeah. Um. I also want to bring up, and I wish I had watched this before the podcast because I don't remember a lot of it, but it's a scene from Star Trek, mm-hmm. and it's when... Which one? Uh, Next Generation. Ooh, the best one. No! <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Data is talking to Dr. Nunian Sung, Sung, and I think, I think Dr. Sung is dying at this point or something like that anyway, and... Uh, Data's like, I, for, I totally forgot like what exactly he asked him. But I think it's something like, why did you create me? Because mm-hmm. um, that is the creator of Data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Which, yeah, it's a good thing we put that out yeah. there because <laughs> all of us were like nodding along. Yes, you go keep going, but not everyone has seen it. No. Yeah. And Dr. Soong uh turns the question back on data, which is kind of a long conversation to have when he's dying. I don't know. Was, <laughs> was he dying? I don't remember. Um, and he's like, data, why do humans like old things? And data responds that they like feeling the connection of themselves back to history and their ancestors and a sense of their lives being uh, more than their own short lives because they're in a sense, part of history and their ancestors. And then, Dr. Singh says, yes, that's right. That's what the humans think. And also that's why I created you because, and, and why people have children, I guess, because they also want to do it into the future, not just in the past. Same thing. And I was listening to that and I was like, you know, that's a real thing and it's powerful and I hate it oh. <laughs> because um, like having connections to people is cool, but your life is still just your life and you can't claim their lives as your own, even if they wanted you to, like, even if you're their kid, they wanted your life to be like a part of theirs and theirs to be part of yours and you both want it, but no, it's, it's just not true. Your life is your life. <laughs> and I, I don't really like this idea of like extending yourself through other people and making them part of you and you're part of them. And it's, yeah. I, I kind of think that even though it's sort of true that you can't have anyone else's life, 
I think that it is a useful fiction and that it is maybe good and psychologically healthy for humans to have that sort of feeling, that they are part of their community and a larger thing, a larger organism that will keep going and that their children are an extension of that. I just, but I also feel that maybe has like benefits, but also some real negatives that uh, cause people to sacrifice their identities to the group and and for people to think of like the like i don't matter individual people don't matter as long as our group continues into the future i think in some ways that's a good thing though in some ways it's good and in some ways it's bad and i mean like uh, a crucial thing to remember about the group continuing into the future is that the group is necessarily made up of individuals so if the group's continuing into the future then so are individuals. But if the individuals are sacrificing every individual value or most of their individuality for this thing that's not even a person, it's just a structure. It is, you know, it, it doesn't have its own feelings. It is, it is a structure. But without the group, the individuals would die too. I think it's sort of a balancing and, act. And also that question of whether or not a structure like that can have feelings and preferences is worthy of a whole other yeah. episode. Um, but also, also, you reminded me of something that I wanted to mention earlier and forgot to, uh, which is um, talking about history and things going into the past. When I was talking about alternatives to Burning Man that can give you some of the same experience, a large part of what I enjoy about going to uh, ancient places like Bagan or Angkor, uh, Angkor Wat or Angkor Tom is that that is not replicated at Burning Man is that all of this stuff is very old and has quite a bit of history behind it. And everything at Burning Man is transient and new. Um, even if it's something that someone has been bringing from since the very first burn, which I'm not sure if there are any physical objects that actually have survived that long, even if they did, that's 31 years, which is not very long in the grand scheme of things. And on the subject of participating in rituals, if you ever want to uh, participate in long-standing rituals like that and you don't have ones available to you in your community uh, and you are plausibly Jewish looking <laughs> go to New York City and eventually a Hasidic Jew will ask you if you are Jewish and if you say yes they will invite you to participate in rituals with them and you can go and it's awesome hmm. in the sense of literally awe-inspiring you know I went to a Catholic church for the first time this year okay uh, I had to. <laughs> I wasn't. You, you, I was I mean, paid to. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and also, like, it was part of my regular job. I couldn't just be like, no, I don't want to do this thing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. So I had to take a client to his church, which was the Catholic church. And it was, the ritual was very, like, formalized and stylized. And there was, like, bells being rung at certain times. And everyone knew what to say. And there was probably some places where you could read like a book where you could read what to say, but most of the people just knew what to say. And the fact that it was like the social atmosphere that everyone thought of this as important and normal and not ho hokey really just legitimized it so much. And I got to say the, the Catholic church knows what it's doing when, with ritual. It is an expert at that. Wow. I agree. I was not brought up Catholic, but Allison was. Um, and she's not Catholic anymore, but we will occasionally go to like midnight mass for uh, on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the Catholics 
have spent literally thousands of years yeah. refining and perfecting their rituals, and they know what they're doing. I agree. This is very effective. Like even on me, that was just you know had to be there for, for you, you, yeah. You mentioned how it didn't seem hokey. Yeah, and. I think that that is a virtue that in modern society is largely neglected. And the idea that, like, I think things have moved a bit more in this, in in a good direction here over the past few years. But certainly several years ago, it seemed like everything was ironic. And you couldn't risk being sincere about anything or else you might get made fun of. And... I think that we lost a lot in that regard. Um, We lost the opportunities for sincere emotions that can be really powerful and important. And so seeing places like uh, Catholic Mass or the um, Shabbat dinner uh, where, I mean, especially at at, uh, Shabbos, um, people might laugh, but also everyone is very sincere uh, about taking it seriously and not making fun of what's going on um, was a unique experience for me that, that it's pretty rare for, for things like that uh, to be completely without a trace of irony for me. And yeah, I'd like more of that. Yeah. Uh, Well, in, I'm jumping ahead a little bit on the feedback, but in line with that, the great Nick, when your question was, do we have any ritual things that we can go to? Uh, the great Nick says, um, with a couple of things Inyash was saying about <laughs> church and ritual and singing that, I was wondering if the panel was aware of Sunday assembly. Have either of you guys ever heard of sub- Sunday assembly? I've heard of it. Is, okay. is it the, the um, humanist Sunday I, assembly? It sounds like it. Yeah. He says it's, or the great Nick, Nick is probably a guy's name, right? Anyway, they say it's a movement trying to replicate all the great stuff about church, community, talking about big things, coffee and cake, but without touching on anything supernatural. It's sometimes described as an atheist church, but to use a definition from the podcast, I think it's more of a post-theist church type thing. (laughs) There's no bashing of religion in the same way there's no bashing of vampires. We're just past that as a society, right? (laughs) Anyway, you have that element of singing pop songs together, which is fun and silly. You can hear talks from academics. Seems like something the panel might see the benefit of. Uh, I am familiar with it. I've been several times. Oh, you have? Yes. Um, And there's another thing which is not technically Sunday Assembly, but is trying to do the same thing. And the name escapes me at the moment, but my dad goes to it every week. Are you thinking about Secular Hub? Yes. Okay. I've heard about that. Coffee and Community? Sorry, what? Coffee and Community every Sunday morning? Maybe. It's definitely Secular Hub. I'm not sure if it's Coffee and Community. That's what they do. It's on Sunday mornings. It's Coffee and Community. Um, I've been to that once. Yeah, my dad goes every week, and I've been several times. I, uh, I saw him there. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> tall guy, bald goatee. Yeah. Yep, that's him. Um, he uh, he likes it, uh, obviously, since he goes every yeah. week, and he volunteers and does things for them. Um, I have been to that several times. I've been to the uh, Sunday Assembly several times in New York. Um Neither of them comes anywhere close to what a church does. Um, the great Nick said that they do the silly thing of singing pop songs. Church mm-hmm. is not silly. <laughs> no, it's not supposed to be anyway. Exactly. And if you're doing it right, it's not. It's serious. It's solemn sometimes. And yeah, you can laugh like Purim is a holiday that is intrinsically comedic. Um, but 
I've not been to those things, specifically the ones that happen every week, and had anything like the sort of emotional experience that I've had going to Catholic Mass or Jewish Shabbos or a Buddhist temple um, and anything like the actual solemn moving experience that I've had in a religious context. Mm, but I will say that growing up in a Protestant religion, it, it does most Protestant churches, they are serious, but they do not have that sense of like moving and sacred mm. quality that the Catholic church has. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think Pro the Protestant culture is one that prefers it that way. Yeah. <laughs> It, it sounded more familiar to me, too, because Jehovah's Witnesses are also a Protestant sect. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like it could be neat. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree. And I think you're definitely right about that, that Protestantism, I mean, it's right there in the name. It's specifically a revolt against <laughs> yeah. Catholicism. And so they're yeah. deliberately doing things differently. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends on what you want out of your Sunday experience. Certainly, yeah. But on, on the subject of specifically ritual, I think it's pretty undeniable that Catholics have a better grip on that than yeah. Protestants. Yeah. Um, are either of you familiar with Quakers? I mean, I know of Quakers. I considered becoming one when I was deconverting Ooh. from Christianity, when I was like wanted to step my toe a little bit out of. Oh. Yeah. yeah but have you been to a friends meeting? And I really wanted to do it, but I, I, I researched it a lot. Never did. So you know the the format of it. I know that there's. Two different formats, generally, but I think the one you're talking about is the one that has, like, the, the sitting in silence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, um, the ones I'm... Quaker groups here in Denver? Probably. probably. For a friend's meeting house on, on Google, and you'll probably find something. Um, yeah, the, the specific, uh, the one I'm familiar with, I didn't actually know there was two different ways of doing it. I, th I think this one is maybe the more common, I'm not sure. The one I'm familiar with, my grandparents on my uh, father's side are um, were Quaker and also atheists. Um, and the specific format that the Quaker Friends meeting follows is uh, there is no priest or anything like that. No one is any higher or closer to God than anyone else. So you, everyone sits in a circle in silence. And then if the Holy Spirit moves you to say something, you stand up and you say it, whatever it is. And then you sit down, and if anybody else is moved to say anything, they do that. And you just do that for two hours every Sunday. Huh. And it's very weird and very boring and very different from any other church thing that I've ever done. And definitely worth doing if, if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in. Definitely worth doing at least once. Should I get back to the feedback? Okay. That does sound very interesting, though. I, I will someday see if I can find a Quaker person. <laughs> I, I have at this point been to a, I still haven't been to a Catholic mass, but I've been to a uh, satanic mass. Huh. And that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, I went to one of those in Berkeley. Okay. Well, well, which, uh, which sect of Satanism? Uh, Levian. Okay. This, this was, yeah, similar. Uh, are there other sects? Yeah, there are, there are actually a oh, number. Like there is an actual theistic kind of Satanism. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and those guys are badass, and I want to interview them someday for a podcast because <laughs> I'm a supporter and I just, I love everything they do. But yeah, uh, the, the mass I went to was the, what does OTO stand for? Order Templo Orientalis. Thank you. There we go. Yeah. And that was interesting. I was like, this is. This is not a thing I would do often, but I'm glad that I managed to participate one time. Yeah. 
Uh, so Googleplex Byte says, um, in relation to what ritual is, breathing, my walking gait, the way I open a door, etc., are all actions I do repeatedly in the same way, but I wouldn't call them rituals, nor would any significant number of people. I'm not even sure repetition is needed for a ritual. It's still a ritual if it's the first time you're doing it, and if you end up not doing it again. <clears throat> my best shot at defining ritual is a system designed to reduce decision space. So Christmas Day is a ritual because instead of deciding when to give gifts or bringing family together or celebrate Jesus, you just set the same date each year so you don't have to think about it. Morning rituals are rituals because rather than deciding what you do each morning and what order to do them in, you, set through, you go through them in a pre-specified list. Repetition becomes a common but not categorical element because repetition is good at reducing decision space. And I actually really kind of like that definition because I think there is a lot of value to reducing decision space. So like a restaurant menu is a ritual by this standard? I don't know if a restaurant menu is a it ritual. I mean, it reduces the... I mean, I would say it's not. I'm using this to demonstrate a flaw in the definition. Okay, gotcha. That it That is an example of a thing that reduces decision space. What yeah. are you going to eat for dinner? Well, there's an infinite number of possibilities. Or you can pick from this list of 20. Yeah. I, I guess it would be more actions that... Shit. Fine. You <laughs> and your stupid... <laughs> being right about things <laughs> but i i like it because it did i mean my workout ritual did constrain my my list of options it was just i will do this and I, morning rituals are the same kind of thing because you have the same things you have to do every morning but just having a ritual way that you do them in reduces the decision fatigue and the having to think about things and keep a list that you check off if you're like well i just brushed my teeth now i go on to combing my hair or whatever that's it, i I, I've recently been reading this V a lot and he makes an argument that decisions are bad and uh, mm. gives a number of good reasons for it. And I am I am being very much won over that uh, not decisions are bad, options are bad. Uh, having a large decision space that you can choose from is generally bad. You can like maybe one time narrow down the thing that you want. And then after that, having to be faced with decisions over and over is a bad thing. And uh, I think that rituals serve a very useful function in that they reduce that sort of thing that wears on your life and your mental, mental processing every day and lets you do the things you actually want to do with your mental energy. I agree that that's a valuable thing, and I do agree that that's a thing that rituals do. Um, I do think that the repeated aspect is a very important one. And the, this person was saying that even if somebody, even if it's the first time you do a ritual, it's still a ritual. I agree with that. But then they said that even if nobody else or does it ever, and if you don't do it ever again, then it's still not a, then it's still a ritual. And I'm less confident about that. I would say that yeah, that makes it sound like a failed attempt at starting a ritual that um, if you're not maintaining a connection between different points in time, if you're not repeating actions, then I'm not sure it is a ritual. Um, and obviously all of this is, you know, hair splitting and arguing over semantics, but um, in as much as uh, ritual is pointing at a real cluster, I think that the repeated aspect is an important part of that cluster. And I think that um, so to, to take the restaurant menu example, uh, going to a restaurant is not a ritual, but going to the same restaurant at the same time every week with the same group of people might be a ritual. And so, for instance, my dad was telling me about how he uh, would 
his family would go to Arkansas for the summer. Every summer, they would take the same route. They would stop in the same diner. They would order the same food. They would stop at a corner store and buy Fig Newtons so that when they went into the town of Newton, they could all eat a Fig Newton together. And those are rituals. That's the... (laughs) But in an adorable way. (laughs) Yeah. I I feel like it's when the repetition or, or sameness takes on some kind of special significance or meaning is that when it's a ritual, because you can all, we all have re- repetitive habits and not all habits are rituals. To me, the, the, the defining element of a ritual is the, the way that's, that it evokes a certain significance or meaning. I almost want to say that there must be some kind of form over function element to, to make I agree. It a ritual. I think that's a good way of yeah, that's a good description. I do I do really empathize with his choice of Christmas as ritual, which I think was probably an accident on his part, but uh Jehovah's Witnesses obviously have no holidays mm-hmm. uh aside from, you know, the one the the Passover. Uh but I, I was once complaining about this to my my mom. I was like, when I was a kid, of course, I was like, I, you know, I never get presents. And she's like, but everyone else always has just the one day when they get presents. And so there's no, I know also birthday, but there, there's no like caring or thought that's put into it. It's just like, well, here's your present day. So now you get a present. And I was like, oh, that's that's a good point. She's like, yeah, you could get a present any day. Like every day could be a special day when you get a present. <laughs> and, and then and you know you? that there's actual love gone into this <laughs> present because you got it not because I had to give you a present on present day, but because I love you. It's like, oh, that's neat. And out of my entire childhood, I got a present one time. <laughs> and so there is a lot because when every single day could potentially be present day, you can't give a present every single day, right? So you're like, okay, not this day, I guess. And eventually just fades from your mind. And having a single or one or two days of the year that you get presents is incredibly handy because you have that shelling point when you get the presents. And going into the uh, uh, the temporal aspects of it, of it again, that lets you look forward to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, and it lets you plan ahead. So like if you know that you should give people presents on that day. You can spend time beforehand finding people presents, putting thought into it, putting love into it, and and figuring out something good to give. Whereas if it's just, hey, I saw this thing on a whim, I'm going to get it for you, then um, one, maybe less thought goes into that, or maybe more, uh, but two, the other person definitely doesn't get to look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, I just want to tell a little story. I had a piano teacher who was a Jehovah's Witness, and one day she just gave me a present. And then she was like, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and we don't do birthdays and Christmas, but we just give presents when we want to. So here's your present. (laughs) I was like, wow, that's really nice. (laughs) So you enjoyed getting the present. Yeah. That's nice. Good. And it certainly seems to be memorable. Like, how long ago did that happen? A long time. I still remember the one present I got, I got to admit. <laughs> it was a Monopoly game. Yeah. <laughs> your one challenge present. <laughs> and your parents told you that they didn't like you unless you achieved things. <laughs> I mean, also, to be fair to my parents, they gave me life and shelter and food and all that. So I don't want to sound ungrateful. I mean, all, 
You didn't seem to turn out that bad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they, they, they probably would have had the government punish them if they didn't do those things. Jesus, <laughs> man. Way to bring everything down. My parents were decent parents, damn it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to, no, to insult cool. your parents. Uh, Pope Mobile 2 agrees with you on, on the definition thing, saying, I think a good definition of ritual is a situation where the way in which the activity is performed has importance beyond its usefulness. Yeah. And that's what separates going to the movie in general from going to see The Room by Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great example of a ritualized uh, event. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I enjoy that movie so much. I, you know, I didn't. I, I, I'm glad that I saw it the one time, but I can't say I enjoyed it. Did you see it? In I did like not. a proper surrounding. No, I didn't. I have not seen it in its ritual manner. I have not seen Rocky Horror in its ritual manner. Both times, I just kind of watched it on TV. Like on your own, or were you at least with other people to laugh with? So uh, the room I saw with two other people. Uh, so we were laughing together. Rocky Horror Picture Show. I stumbled across on accident. Oh goodness! I saw. I I did not realize it was right at the beginning of the movie. I managed to stumble into it like two minutes into the movie on Bravo Channel back before they had like commercials and shit. I was like, this is interesting. I'm just going to keep watching until the next commercial. And I saw the entire movie and I was like, oh my God, that was fucking tragic. What the hell? <laughs> like, goodness, I had feels for this movie. Wow. All right. But no, I've never seen it in the cool like throwing rice at the screen and shit kind of way. Still a virgin. I am. All yeah. Right. Someday I'll have to go. Yeah, it's worth it. Uh, I've heard from other people that it's not that great. Okay. <laughs> so the actual movie itself no, no, is quite bad. The, the experience they were talking about. like the, oh. yeah. Which one, well, the Rocky Horror or the yeah, Rocky Horror? Rocky Horror? Yeah. Well, I think that um, the quality of Rocky Horror experience varies a lot from, from crowd to crowd. Mm. Um, I've been more than once, and I've been to ones where the crowd really didn't add much, and I've been to ones where the crowd added quite a bit. Mm. So may also be kind of like Burning Man, where if you come in with expectations, it never quite lives up to them. That's possible, but also I think that um, like if you go to Burning Man in 2015 versus 2018, they won't be hugely different. Right. Whereas if you go to Rocky Horror in like a town where it's just a thing that happens every now and then, that's not a big deal. But if you go to Rocky Horror where there's a dedicated community that mm. like they dress up, they like there are yeah. ones where like they will they act out every the entire show live in front of the screen as it happens. Yeah, and that's pretty incredible. So. I'd like to see that. There's a, there's a wide range. That was also one of the things. I mean, I know there's some people that have watched The Room over dozens of times and <laughs> written, like, things about it. But The Room didn't give me any feels, whereas Rocky Horror did. Hmm. With The Room, I was just like, oh, man. Tommy was so went through a really bad breakup and wanted to movieize it. Is <laughs> 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 the impression I got. I don't know if that's what really happened. <laughs> No one knows. That's what's so fascinating yeah. about that. He's this mystery character. Like, yeah. I'm really looking forward to The Disaster Artist. Do uh, you know about that? No. His next movie? Or no, no, no. It's the movie about the, movie the about making it? of ah. The Room, starring James Franco as Tommy Wiseau. Oh, I did hear I, that, about I thought this. that already came out. Has it, it not yet? No, I don't think it has. I think oh, it comes okay. out in I usually months. don't hear about things until they've come out. So I have heard about this, and I thought it was already out because of that. I don't think it's out yet. Okay. If it is, I'll be surprised and looking to buy a ticket. Neat. Hmm. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. And then the final bit of feedback on ritual, Eurist McCurble, 
I hope that's how you pronounce it, says, making events feel like rituals purely for shared experience never works. You need to get people to be engaged first, willing to put time and energy for a cause that is important to them. You can get almost anyone to wear a robe and hold a candle if you're caroling to raise money for veterans or something. Uh, But when I was part of a motivated religious community, rituals for their own sake never took off. But rituals for a cause were wildly successful. So, there's that. Interesting. Yeah. We... uh, Moving on now to the... um, this was in our Sacred Cows episode. Uh, Googleplex Byte says, Regarding the power dynamic in relationships, ancestral relationships have a very unbalanced power dynamic because of the barriers to exit. It leaves the other person with a massive amount of leverage to destroy your life. You can't just escape them. They're part of your family. You'd be forced to abandon everything. Which uh, I thought was a good point and something important to bring up as well. Did you guys have any comments on the incest? thing um my impression is that there is a real one of the elements that goes into creating like incest taboo is the westermark effect and if people what is the westermark effect um i think that they identified it as a thing that happens when a child sees another child being fed by their own mother Mm. but i feel that there's probably a lot of other things that could maybe just part of growing up with the child as your sibling creates that as well not just that that particular act but uh so it came from the study uh of kids growing up in a kibbutz i think and these kids were not actually siblings but they had organized the child rearing such that they would go through like child rearing uh, tasks yeah as if they were siblings and none of them wanted to marry each other when they grew up um yeah so that's like the westermark effect okay um, and I think that probably when people who grew up together as siblings, um, like they they, sh- they sh- probably should get this effect this in, done this on them. This intrinsic grossness right? sort of feel. Yeah, and then if it if it doesn't, it's a symptom of something that prevented them from getting that. That's like a, a sign of something wrong. Mm-hmm. Or if they did get it, but they still have sex despite having that, that's also yeah. <laughs> a sign of something wrong. So I think there's some some legitimate reasons. <laughs> for, uh, and also, like, if there is this thing wrong and you're doing this, it's probably exacerbating whatever it is that's wrong. I think that um, there's more than one thing that's called incest. So, like, there is an adult having sex with a prepubescent child, and that is definitely bad. There's also two adults who are cousins or siblings uh, having consensual sex with each other, and that is much less bad. Like, out of all of the things that Cersei and Jamie Lannister have done, boning each other is not on my top ten list of things I would have prevented. Um, and, you know, hashtag life goals or wife goals. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I, I mean, seriously, I think that... Um, I've read uh, a number of, like, anonymous confession things where there's stuff like, um, me and my sister got married um, and things like that. And honestly, it's really difficult for me to find anything morally or ethically wrong there. And uh, I think that 
certainly having sex with someone who doesn't consent or um, because they're too young to consent or because they explicitly don't consent or because they're in a power dynamic with you where they can't safely refuse consent. That, those, all of those things are definitely bad and you shouldn't do them. But having sex with somebody who does consent and is in a position where they can safely choose whether or not to consent and they're mentally uh, mature and together enough to actually make their own decisions, it's really hard for me to say that that is wrong. I think I think I have the same sort of intuitive thing, and I think that may be kind of common among the the rationalist people. A lot of them, and uh, the so I'm going to go ahead and just read this. Uh, Jenkins, who is with us on our ritual podcast. Uh, was not with us for the Sacred Cows podcast, but he commented in the uh, subreddit, I'll go ahead and identify myself as the person who was getting upset when this topic was brought up at a recent meetup. So I'm going to go ahead and let him have his say right here. But Jenkins says, my main reason for being mad about people disagreeing with me on it was that it was like the fifth time I'd seen the incest is just fine and not at all problematic and the people that are grossed out by it, um, blah, blah, blah in a rationalist context, but this was the first time I saw it in real life rather than some online nebulous figures. Since this is a group I've come to identify with, it was really frustrating to see an argument that I think is very wrong and would have actual negative repercussions if settled on by the majority of society to be thrown around so casually in a we figured this out before the rest of the world sort of way. It still makes me upset, but I think it's justified. I'm also bothered by how often this topic tends to come up in rationalist type settings. I strongly suspect that the reason for this is what I alluded to above, where smart people are attempting to look smarter by being contrarian on a topic that is typically only on, only the socially conservative, who are often very wrong on sex things, would come out strongly against. By being pro-gay rights, we're trying to protect a small subset of the population that isn't allowed to be sexual by the previous set of rules. Who exactly are we trying to protect by removing the taboos against incest? Are the potential good relationships that could come out of this worth the amount of social restructuring, i.e. throwing out the nuclear family or something, that would be required to ensure that those types of relationships remain safe and on balance good? I think the answer to this is clearly no. Can we please stop bringing this up as another sexual taboo that eventually will be removed, please? And uh, obviously the answer to that is no, because we're talking about it again right now. (laughs) Um, so first of all, I think they're factually wrong about some stuff. Uh, the, the idea that you would have to remove the nuclear family, um, if a brother and sister get married and have children or adopt children or whatever, that sounds pretty nuclear to me. Um, and I think, I think his contention is that for those sorts of ancestral relationships to remain safe and on balance good, if they were commonly accepted that the nuclear family would have to have some massive restructuring in order for there not to be all these intrinsic uh, power imbalances and inability for someone to exit that relationship without also exiting the entire family and their, you know, emotional and financial support structure. How many adults are still dependent on their extended family for their emotional and financial support structure. You know, it depends on how you define adult. You could get in a sexual relationship in your teens and some people like are still living with their parents when they're going to grad school at like 25, 26. Certainly. And, and, but I'm saying that that seems like 
pointing at the possibility of edge cases in order to deny the entire category. Yeah. And but for, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm on your side, but I'm also thinking that he would say that the real edge cases are the ones we talk about with the brother and sister who fell in love in adulthood, whereas the majority of uh, cases are abusive things in families. Right. Just like how if you talk to people in the 1920s about gay relationships, the vast majority will be pedophiles that they'll bring up. And the idea of two adult men loving each other is absurd and nobody's ever heard of that because you can't do it openly. And I, a thing that I always instinctively do when hearing an argument is I try to come up with a specific example and, and work through it in my mind, or I try to see if I can come up with a one-to-one relationship between this argument and a different argument. And that's like why I came up with the restaurant menu example of a ritual and why I'm immediately comparing this to being openly gay. And that the argument that this person just gave against uh, accepting um, and allowing public uh, incestual relationships maps perfectly onto the argument against accepting and allowing public gay relationships. That, oh, you if you came out as gay, your family would abandon you. If you uh, allow two men to get married, that's fundamentally restructuring the nuclear family, which has existed for how many decades? And uh, all of the same arguments apply in exactly the same ways. And so if you want me to accept your arguments, you either need me to also accept that we should, you know, look down upon gay relationships, which I don't. So I don't accept these arguments. Okay. I I am still torn on this because I don't have data as to how many, what the prevalence is of the really abusive type of relationships versus the ones that are not. On I mean, on the one hand, obviously any sort of relationship between consenting adults, I'd be like, who is it harming? And if it's not harming anyone, do as ye will. Um, I know I heard that somewhere else, but uh, <laughs> again, <laughs> that, that's it, the pagan thing. The oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. If it harmed none, do as you will. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the, the thing is if there's no victims, I don't care. Do, do your thing. Um, but the, I like his argument that if this was implemented society wide, there would be issues, especially with society being somewhat dysfunctional. I don't know, maybe, I just, I don't want to take a hard stance one way or the other because I don't, like you said, there's so many, if there are relationships like this, they're in the closet. So we don't have any data as to how many there really are. Yeah. And it's not like this relationships that we currently consider acceptable don't ever end up abusive. Right. And, you know, it's not like because we're accepting of gay rights, that doesn't mean we're accepting of a man having sex with a child, right? Just because they're of the same gender. So we could be accepting of incest between brothers and sisters that are adults and yet still not be accepting of children having sex. Yeah. But I think that, uh, like, empirically, if gay relationships had been shown to be inherently, like, unhealthy, that would be important to know, right? And that would affect my approval of them. I personally have come to believe that uh, gender doesn't affect whether relationships are inherently healthy or not but i think adults should be allowed to do things even that aren't healthy i think drinking alcohol is unhealthy i think that they should be allowed to but i wouldn't i don't approve of them like i'm not sure that i should feel bad about disapproving of things although i would i like there are things that i kind of disapprove of which i know i shouldn't disapprove of right and i want to change that Um, i can't think of anything right now maybe like fashion or whatever those polka dots look ugly you should wear them (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but um it's like empirical data 
changes whether I like what I think about these things. If it could be shown that ancestral relationships, relationships between people who grew up in the same family, let's say, to me, it doesn't have to do with the genes at all. Right. Um, If it could be shown that they're not intrinsically unhealthy, then I, I would try to approve of them. Right. But currently, I think that there's pretty good evidence that they are. So a third of gay men have HIV. An interjection here. Thomas wanted to check his numbers to be really sure about this. Turns out the one-third number is only for certain areas. Overall, according to the source he found, the number is only one out of every six. That's pretty unhealthy. (sighs) And I don't think that's intrinsic. I think that's circumstantial. What's the difference in function? Yeah, I don't think the intrinsicality really matters all that much. Like, Like, this is the reason I don't have gay sex anymore, because I'm terrified of catching HIV. I was raped a few years ago, and that was a pretty horrifying experience. And among other things, it left me with um, literal internal scars that are prone to tearing and bleeding and make it much more likely that if I were to have receptive anal sex, I would catch a disease if the person that I'm having sex with has a disease. And, uh, And I'm really scared of that. And I can't or rather I have not yet been able to um, be confident enough that a person that I want to have sex with and who wants to have sex with me and has a penis um, is not going to give me a disease. And so I'm choosing not to engage in that activity, and I am fine with other people choosing to engage in that activity. But I'm not fine with the the uh, l- large amount of gay culture that is like against condom use and things like that. And Mm -hmm. I think that, um, sure. If, if people with, uh, people who are, are, I mean, like Charles Darwin married and had children with his first cousin and up until quite recently, and even in many places in the present first cousin marriage was totally normal. It wasn't even considered unusual. And um, if people are direct siblings with one another, yes, it increases the odds of them having children with birth defects or whatever almost as much as a woman who's 35 having children. So are we going to ban that? If we're talking about health in terms of uh, like literal physical health, it's actually quite dangerous to have gay sex as, as a man. Um, lesbians are even safer than straight people so you know mm-hmm. kudos to them have as much sex as you can to bring up our averages <laughs> um and so i i think that talking about harm and health and that things like that is almost a red herring because when it comes to things like i i am very confident that there are people who are listening to me right now and are horrified at what i'm saying because how dare i compare people who are unfortunate enough to catch a disease to people who are deliberately choosing to engage in this activity that the listener considers unethical. And my point is that by having that reaction, like observe that reaction in yourself and realize that the harm going on is not the thing you care about. I I think that would be a good argument for people who want to ban things. Right. And so I think that the fact that I don't want to ban gay sex means that I must reject this argument and means that I can't apply this argument to other things like ancestral sex. And I don't think I want to ban it either, but 
I, I do give it the side eye. I, 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 gay I, sex, you mean? No. The, oh, the, the incest. The, not, not even the incest, the having sex with people you grew up with. Right. <laughs> yeah, mm. in, in, a, in a family situation. If you grew up with them next door to you, that's probably, Different. yeah. And, and this, the, the experiments have kind of shown that, like, even living on a commune, if you're raised separately, sort of say, in, in separate families, it, it works out much differently than, the, than it worked out in the, the kibbutz. Yeah, I was wondering, what's your opinion on folks who are not genetically related to each other, but were raised together on a kibbutz? Yeah, I, I, that is, to me, that, that that's not, not good. It squeaks, squeaks you out the same way. Uh, yeah, and I, don't, I honestly don't care if they're genetically related. And, right. Like and, Woody, yeah. Woody Allen marrying his daughter, even though it was legal because she wasn't genetically related to him and of age when they married, is still gross because he raised her. Yeah. Wasn't she like 16 when he adopted her? Uh, he never adopted her. Oh, well. um, not, not legally. Uh, the person that he was dating at the time adopted her, and she was older, um, at, but pr- not as old as that. She, but she was still an, an older child when she was adopted. I thought she was still prepubescent when they first ad- was, yeah. was adopted, right? I, I think I don't know exactly, but anyway, yeah. So, it, uh, and she she ins- insists to this day that. He was never really, she never saw him as a family figure, but right. it's hard. He was a family figure to her siblings that she lived in the same house with. I don't know. It's weird, but I guess they're not hurting anyone, and so they can do whatever they want. I just think it's kind of weird and gross, but they they are free to do weird and gross things, and that is part of being an adult. Uh, there, There is also a, an actress... That you can see in TV shows. I don't know her name. Um, whose parents were adopted brother and sister. Huh. Really? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that is also one of the reasons I would not be against gay sex. Even though it may be dangerous. It's like, it's your body. You have, as long as there's no victims, you can do what you want with it. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not like making a strong argument for banning or anything. But I definitely have a, a prior probability let's say that there's something not good going on when that happens it could be at least a a sign that maybe look into this well i mean i'm not gonna look into it <laughs> <laughs> they're probably not gonna look into it either maybe a sign that think twice before being friends with this person like mm. what, what is it what is it that if you found that out about someone, how would that change your interaction with them? Oh, I, I maybe change my opinion about them in some nebulous way, I guess. Yeah. All right. We've yeah. been doing feedback for about an hour. Okay. We could probably stop now. Okay. All right. Dude, it's so fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. And you guys are amazing. Uh, also, mad, mad thanks to our sound engineer, Kyle Moore, <laughs> who makes us sound amazing and who does a lot of the juggling when uh, weird things happen in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yay. Thanks to him as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>